Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Probably about three months ago, I started getting really itchy. And then just like in like my chest would itch like crazy. My back would itch like crazy. I'm like, what is going on? Because I'm really religious on my diet. I don't cheat on my diet, but a couple times a year, like I'm really hardcore about it. And then it, it started with like a little spot on my neck. And then it was like, I had to wear like long sleeve, everything. I was just one big rash. It was, it was insane. And I've never had anything like that in my life. And so I was like, this, I know this is something I'm eating. Just like in my gut, I can feel that that's true but I haven't changed my diet. So I was like, what could this be? And before I give you the punchline of what I think it is, what, when you hear stuff like that, where do you go? Well, the best way to think about your skin is your, the lining of your gut is actually your skin turned inside out. That's fascinating. And so you have from your mouth all the way down to your anus, a tube that's got the surface area of a tennis court. And everything that you swallow is actually outside of you as it's moving through. The inside skin has to do the same functions as the outside skin, and that is kind of keep things away from us, but it's got a fatal flaw. It not only has to keep things out, but it has to let things in, Mm. like the proteins and the fats and the sugars that we eat. So that's where the mischief can happen. But when I see someone with an external skin problem, it's always a reflection of what's happening in the gut. What is that process? What does it look like? How can people that are watching this now, if they're struggling from something, how do they begin that process of repair? So, you know, I think the first thing you do is get major lectin-containing foods out of your diet. You won't like me for a couple of weeks, uh, but most people, even within a couple of weeks, begin to notice a difference. Now, what are those? They're foods that we actually, evolutionary, were not designed to eat. Beans are so lethal, raw, that there's very good published studies in humans that they can cause massive bloody diarrhea. And there's some pretty good studies in monkeys, rhesus monkeys, and red velvet monkeys monkeys that they can actually cause heart disease and even kidney damage from the lectin content. Mm. What's fascinating from a human evolution standpoint is that humans up until the dawn of agriculture 
we're actually very tall creatures. Uh, most humans were about six feet tall. And our brain size was about 15% bigger than it is today. And when, if you look chronologically, by 8,000 years, uh, 2,000 years into grain and bean eating, we actually shrunk about a foot. And our brain wow. size has never recovered from 10,000 years ago. Mm. So these are anti-nutrients. Grains and beans, that's number one. Number two... 2,000 years ago, northern European cows suffered a genetic mutation, a spontaneous mutation where they stopped making the normal protein in milk, casein A2, and began making casein A1. Now, casein A1 has a lectin-like protein that is converted into a compound called beta-caseomorphine, which can cause a direct immunologic attack on the beta cell of the pancreas, the insulin-producing cell in the pancreas. And there's some pretty good evidence, and it's accumulating every, every year, that one of the causes of type 1 diabetes or juvenile diabetes is casein A1 milk. And it actually correlates very well in countries that have casein A1 cows. They have much higher incidence of type 1 diabetes than countries that have casein A2 cows. Cheeses, for instance, are safe from France, Italy, and Switzerland. Sheep, goats, and water buffalo are all casein A2. And what is it about that that's so problematic? It actually makes a, it's a lectin-like compound that stimulates an immune response. So just as I would get from the beans or whatever I'm exactly. getting. Exactly, you'll get the same thing. Okay. So it's a, it's a very new addition to our diet. Now, the newest addition to our diet is some of our most precious foods are American North American or South American foods. For instance, in the nightshade family, uh, potatoes, eggplant, peppers, tomatoes, and goji berries. So the, the nightshades, the peel and the, and the seeds have the lectins. And Native American Indians in the Southwest always peel and de-seed their peppers. They char their peppers, they de-seed them, and then they either grind it into chili or eat them that way. But they always do that. The Italians always peel and de-seed their tomatoes before they make sauce. And is this like a cultural intuition kind of thing where they... Yeah. What I, what I like to do is I go around the world studying cultures and figuring out why did they do this? How mm. did they detoxify lectins? For instance, rice was invented 8,000 years ago. Four billion people use rice as their staple. Yet four billion people take the hull off of rice and eat it white. And surely there can't be 4 billion dumb people who don't know any better that white rice is bad for them and brown rice is good for them. Mm. In fact, they've been taking the hull off of rice for 8,000 years. Same way, believe it or not, up until William, William and Harvey Kellogg in the early 1900s did the idea that whole grains were good for us. And if you look back 50 years, and when the whole grain goodness really caught on, you'll notice that a lot of our current health issues, including this epidemic of autoimmune disease, didn't occur. This epidemic of dementia didn't occur. And so whole grains are one of those wonderful myths that got perpetrated by a few individuals. 
The other individual that perpetrated this, English surgeon by the name of Dr. Burkett. And Dr. Burkett uh, did some missionary work in Africa in the middle of the, cent- of the last century. And he is a colon surgeon, a guy who would operate on colon cancers. And he went down there to do some work, and nobody had colon cancer. And he actually went around and watched and looked at the bowel movements of these Africans who were eating huge amounts of tubers, things like yams, for instance, mm-hmm. or celerac root, or jicama. And their bowel movements were huge. And he goes, wow, you know, look at all, they're eating all this fibrous stuff. And it must be that the fiber in their diet is keeping them from having colon cancer. So he came back to England and he espoused the, the fiber theory of preventing cancer. Now, the problem is, in England, they didn't have a lot of these sorts of tuberous foods, but they had tons of what's called insoluble fiber in the form of wheat and rye and barley and even oats. So he didn't know the difference between insoluble fiber and soluble fiber. Mm. And so he said, we should all be eating fiber. And so that's actually where that whole idea that the hall was actually good for you. Now, the ironic thing is he actually died of colon cancer. That is very ironic. Very ironic. Uh, there's a saying among surgeons that we always die from the disease we treat. So, <laughs> Well, then, so that, oh, there's so many interesting points in there. Talk to me about how animal meats end up, because you don't eat hardly any. Um, how, how does lectin find its way into animal meat? We raise animals with antibiotics, and this was discovered by, by accident years ago when they were thinking that antibiotics might be needed for crowded conditions of um, you know, stockyard animals. But the researcher found out that by giving antibiotics to these animals, they grew faster and got fatter much quicker than the animals who didn't get the antibiotics. So it was approved uh, by the Department of Agriculture and the FDA to give antibiotics to animals for the purpose of growth. Those, what we didn't know is that those residual antibiotics are incorporated into the meat, mm-hmm. of the beef, the chicken, the pork, you name it. And so we actually, every time we ingest factory-raised meats or even farm-raised fish, ingest microdoses of antibiotics. Microdoses of antibiotics are incredibly effective at killing off your microbiome. Mm-hmm. So in the last 40 years, we've had this, you know, incredible, you know, the, the worst storm that could possibly happen for our microbiome and for our leaky gut. So then are lectins, there are lectin-like substances in the meat, but is there actually lectin itself? Great question. There was just a paper published from Ohio State a few weeks ago that shows that lectins in soybeans can be found in the meat of animals that you feed them to. Mm-hmm. Now, I used to think that this was kind of fanciful in the alternative medicine world. You know, you are what you eat, but you are what the thing you're eating ate. And as I started seeing more and more autoimmune patients, uh, we had case reports of, uh, particularly there's a 
woman psychologist in L.A. that I talk about in the book who had horrible lupus, was on two drugs, and we got her off of all her drugs by following this program, and her her lupus cleared. Uh, she had rashes, and um, she she came back to see me, and she said, you know, everything's great, but I've got this eczema, this little rash on my upper eyelids. And so we're going through the list. I said, well, something's getting into you. Mm. And we get to pasture-raised chicken. And I said, now you're, you're eating pasture-raised chicken. She said, oh, yeah, I eat organic free-range chicken all the time. It's my go-to food. I said, free-range chicken? And she said, yeah, yeah, you know, organic free-range. I said, well, the federal government in 2007 passed a law that says you can keep 100,000 chickens in a warehouse, feed them organic corn and soybeans, and not let them out of the warehouse except open a door for five minutes every 24 hours, and the chicken has the potential to go outside. And that is the current government definition of organic free-range chicken. Wow. So she was eating the lectins of soybeans and corn mm in the chicken that she was eating. I trained in London, England uh, for children's heart surgery, and my kids were four and six years old, and they missed Kentucky Fried Chicken terribly. And a Kentucky Fried Chicken opened in London. Now, in those days, there was so much fish available in England that the chickens were fed ground-up fish meal. Whoa. And the, the chicken breasts were actually translucent, like fish. And... Uh, so, you know, we go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, they both grab a drumstick and they bite into the drumstick. And my four-year-old goes, oh, oh, you tricked us. This is fish. Oh, this isn't chicken. Whoa. And I'm going, oh, no, 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 no. Look, you know, drumstick, you know, Colonel right. Sanders, that's chicken. No, it's fish. Well, she was right. It wasn't oh. a chicken. It was a chicken with feathers that was actually a fish. So we have to realize that our chickens are no longer chickens. They're an ear of corn with feathers. Americans are 70% carbon atoms from corn, Whoa. a substance that we were never exposed to until 500 years ago. Europeans are 5% corn. In fact, France in, in 1900 banned corn as unfit for human consumption. Wow. So yeah. what I want people to do is, is eat and party like it's 9,999 years ago before we started all this mess. Mm. And when we do that with people and teach them how to do it, it's amazing what happens to them. Well, let's talk about that because if I had um, only heard some headlines about you, I would have thought, oh, red meat, I'll get after it because I eat a ton of red meat and think I'm doing healthy things. So you don't eat a lot of meat, why not? So we found that there was a a molecule, a sugar molecule, on the wall of pig blood vessels that's totally different from the sugar molecule that's in ours. But it differs by only one, actually, atom. And it's, new, it's called NU5GC uh, in pigs, cows, and lambs. And we carry what's called NU5AC. And I have nothing against red meat. But if you look statistically, the red meat eaters do have significantly more coronary artery disease and significantly more cancer. Now, why cancer? Well, it turns out that uh, 
cancer tumors in humans use NU5GC to shield themselves from detection by the immune system. Mm. The problem is we don't manufacture NU5GC, nor can a cancer cell, which means they acquired it from external sources, namely beef, lamb, and pork. Now, fish doesn't carry it. They have the same molecule that we do, and chicken have the same molecule that we do. So I urge people, uh, if they're going to eat animal protein, and I, I do, uh, to use wild shellfish or wild fish as their main source of animal protein. Do I eat meat? Yeah, I mean, do I eat beef? I do. Uh, but I get grass-fed and grass-finished beef, and I use it as, as a treat, not as a mainstay of my diet. And then what's your take on eggs? The yolk of the egg may be the most beneficial food that has ever been invented. And as long as the chickens are fed what they're designed to eat. Well, I actually ask people to mainly throw the whites away. Uh, so we'll do a, a four-egg omelet, but four of them are yolks and just use one white. And what is it in the whites or about the whites that make them problematic? It's, okay, it's animal protein. And let's look at another reason not to eat animal protein, sadly. So animal protein... There, we, there's a sensor in all of our cells called mTOR, and it senses energy availability, and it senses sugar availability, but it senses certain amino acid availability. So if you avoid or lessen your amount of animal protein, your mTOR will fall. Now, we have no way of measuring clinically mTOR, but we can use a surrogate for that which is insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. And in my super old people, and I study a lot of super olds, 95 and above, wow. um, they all have extremely low insulin-like growth factors. And why, why is that a number you want to get down? Because super old people always run low insulin-like growth factors. They always do. And uh, in my upcoming book, The Longevity Paradox, if you look at societies of the blue zones, the longest living people on earth, the common factor that they all have in their diet, they have very diverse diets. Uh, there's no universal diet that these people follow. Mm. And I was a professor at one of the blue zones, Loma Linda, for most of my life. The thing that separates or, or unites all of those various diets is they eat very little animal protein. And one of the things we notice about super old people is they run low body temperatures. They're running 96 degrees, whereas you and I are running 98.6. Mm. And they become incredibly efficient creatures. My mentor, Dr. Morrow, always said that you only have so many heartbeats. And when you use those up, uh, that's the end. And he's actually right in a lot of ways, uh, but the corollary to that is, let's suppose your design is that you only get so many calories in your lifetime, and you can use them quickly, or you can spread them out. And that's why, that's why fasting uh, is so useful, and intermittent fasting is so useful, because it's actually an easy way 
just to reduce your calorie intake. And it's, you know, once you learn how to do it, it's, it's an easy way to make the system work. How do you pull it off? So I'm a huge proponent of intermittent fasting and fasting in general. Um, how do you do it? How do you make it an easy process? So I started uh, 11 years ago, uh, at January 1st to June 1st. But during the week, I would eat all my calories in a two-hour window from 6 to 8 o'clock at night. So that 22 out of the 24 hours every day, five days a week, I was fasting 22 hours. Now, why 6 to 8 o'clock at night? Because that's when my wife and I were at home. And um, Now, this is, as you know, uh, for a professional driver on a closed course. Right. What most people who try to do this don't realize, uh, about 80% of us in America are insulin resistant. We have much too much insulin production. Mm-hmm. And I won't bore you or the listeners, but most people can't do prolonged fasting for even more than a few hours because they can't access the fat that they've stored. And they crash. And it's often called the Adkins flu or the low-carb flu, where they have to be able to transition over to using ketones as a fuel. Mm. Now, you can get there fairly quickly, and we have tips in the book on how to do that. You actually have to use exogenous ketones for a while, things like MCT oil, things like coconut oil, even red palm oil. There's a little bit of exogenous ketones in butter. It's called butyric acid. Yeah, it's um, intermittent fasting is really, really powerful for alleviating brain fog, for changing a relationship to hunger is how I always think of it. It's just fundamentally different. And then getting your machinery used to actually accessing your body fat and all that. We're designed to use up fat. We just have to you know, use the tricks to get to that fat. For most people who are overweight or obese, what's so frustrating for them is they try things like intermittent fasting, and they're pretty miserable. They get headaches, and they're they're very hungry. Their brain is going, hey, you know what? What's the deal? You've cut me off. Mm. It's water, water everywhere, and not a drop to to drink. And we see so many overweight and obese people. And I was seventy pounds overweight. I was obese running 30 miles a week and going to the gym one hour a day wow. and going, Why? how come I'm such a fat guy? I couldn't get to my fat stores because I had an elevated insulin level. Mm. When I first you know, got my insulin level, I was, whoa, um, what's that? Now I have a very low insulin level. Mm. No, that stuff is fascinating in terms of the complexities of really breaking through and figuring out for you, what do you have to do to lose fat, keep it off and yeah, it's a, a very complex thing. And to that end, not necessarily, my question is not really about fat loss, but um, given what we've been talking about, lectins and autoimmune and all of those joints, aches, pains, all the things that come along with it, uh, psoriasis, all of that, what should people be eating? So we, we've got a rough sense of what we should be avoiding, but what should we be actively pursuing? Okay, so uh, the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. Um, There are three long-lived societies in the blue zones that use a liter of olive oil per week. That's That's about 12 to 14 tablespoons a day. Can I use it to saute? You can use it to saute. Believe it or not, there's a wonderful paper from the NIH showing that olive oil does not break down into harmful compounds. That's amazing. But bring olive oil to the table. 
So if you're going to have a steak, please pour it on your meat, mm. as they do in Italy. They always bring a bottle of olive oil so you can have steak Florentina and just drench it with olive oil. The steak is there to get olive oil into your mouth. Mm. Broccoli is there to get olive oil into your mouth. Um, a salad is there to get olive oil into your mouth. So there are wonderful cruciferous vegetables. You can have all the bok choy, broccoli, cauliflower, have cauliflower pizzas. There's a great recipe in my cookbook for cauliflower pizza. Uh, can I have Japanese sweet potatoes? Yes, please. Oh, they're so good. Yeah, but the purpose of the sweet potato is to get olive oil into your mouth. Yes, which works for me just fine if I can saute or use an air fryer. Yeah. Have yeah. you done yes, the indeed. air fryers? Oh my God, they're like french fries. They sure are. So yeah. So those out. are great for you. Things like yucca or yucca uh, make phenomenal french fries, but parboil them first and then put them in the air fryer. Also, any tuber, so like celerac root is fantastic, jicama. So get some guacamole. Believe it or not, true guacamole does not have tomatoes in it. Mm. That's an American whatever. And get yourself some jicama sticks. Trader Joe's has them. Lots of plain old grocery stores have them. Use that as your dipping chip. Other thing I like people to get is uh, vegetables in the chicory family. Uh, The more chicory you can get in your life, radicchio, the kind of Italian red lettuce, is pure inulin and your gut bugs will love love it for it. I want to believe that we can sort of age in reverse, that we can get stronger, better looking, more robust as we age, but that is not conventional wisdom. But you debunk it right off the bat. Yeah. Hit us with it. We want to be Benjamin Button. You know, know, we want to actually de-age. And I really think it's possible. In fact, when people look at my pictures uh, really at the height of my surgical career in the mid-90s and then compare those pictures to me now, uh, there's actually no doubt that I'm actually a younger man than I was uh, almost 30 years ago. Better skin, like what are we judging that by? Better skin, better, yeah, better texture of my skin. One of the things I talk about in the book extensively is your your skin is actually a mirror of the lining of your gut. Your mm. the lining of your gut, which is the surface of a tennis court, is actually your skin turned inside out. What is it that makes you think that the gut is so influential in aging specifically? Because people think of like, I'm going to get arthritis, it's wear and tear, it just is what it is. I've used my joints so much that, you know, they're, they're going to be tapped out. Like it, it actually does make intuitive sense. And so what you talk about in the book is really sort of kicks people into a new way of thinking about it. So why is the gut so tied to what we think of as actual aging? So, uh... Here's the deal. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful animal model for aging that involves a little worm uh, called C. elegans. Uh, it only lives about three weeks, so you can do an intervention in it and kind of instantly know mm. what's going to happen. And so, in this model, the influence of the bacteria, the microbiome and the wall of this little creature's gut, the the lining of the gut is only one cell thick. And they're all kind of held together with what are called tight junctions. Locked arm in arm, like a game we played, Red Rover, Red Rover. 
that kids don't play anymore. So the bacteria are foreign, if you will, and there is an interaction with the bacteria in the gut. Mm. And what this model shows is that as those bacteria begin to break holes in the gut, break down the gut, then you can show that that is when aging starts. And the more the wall breaks down, the faster you age. So let's uh, break down what is aging exactly? Like what are we, so I think most people would sort of go to um, mobility, um, aesthetics, and maybe accumulation of disease. Like how would you define aging specifically? So aging to me is the either quick or slow breakdown of the gut wall. How do we know that? Well, we can take a look at 105-year-old people around the world. You can look at their microbiome, the collection of bugs in their gut. They will have a very diverse set of bugs. They'll have, you know, it, it takes a village, this really incredible tropical rainforest. And those microbiome, that collection, will be identical to a healthy 30-year-old. Mm. So what that says is that these healthy 105-year-olds are healthy because they have the microbiome of a 30-year-old. And it's this microbiome that is not attacking the wall of their gut that's actually existing with the wall of the gut. And we I talk a lot about this crazy bug that may be the key to longevity, and it's got a great name, Ackermansia mucinophilia. Say yeah. that three times. Say that once. Yeah. So this bug lives in a mucus layer that uh, aligns our gut. And if we're lucky, and the way we're designed, we're supposed to have a layer of mucus lining our gut before we get to the cells. And that mucus is there to, number one, trap my favorite subject, lectins, which are plant proteins that are looking for sugar molecules. And number two, it's to protect the wall of the gut from bacteria that might do us harm. So Ackermansia lives in the mucus layer, and it actually eats the mucus. Now here's the best part. The more mucus it eats, the more our gut cells produce mucus. And it actually increases the mucus layer. Mm. And the book is actually lots of tricks on how to make this guy happy. Because the thicker our mucus, the younger we are. In fact, fun fact, metformin we now know works by increasing the amount of acromancia in our gut, not by some magical, mystical thing happening in our body. In fact, interestingly, about 25% of people, when they start metformin, get diarrhea. And uh, it's actually because the gut microbiome changes dramatically on, on metformin. And one of the reasons is that acromancia becomes predominant. Interesting. So at a cellular level, what's happening with metformin, something that simply triggers the body to produce mucus in general? Is it is it changing the microbiome? You called it a rainforest earlier. Is it changing the makeup of that rainforest? Or is it just actually compelling the body to create more mucus? 
No, I think it's actually changing. It's selecting out for acromancia. Now, how does it do that? Because there's actually kind of a shag carpeting on the lining of our gut. Uh, so plants have roots going into the ground. Yep. We know the roots actually absorb nutrients because of the soil microbiome. All the bacteria, all the fungi actually deliver the nutrients into the roots of the plant. Well, we have a root system, and that root system is this shag carpet that makes the, the lining of our gut a tennis court. Okay. So the reason it's so big in surface area is it loops around itself hmm. with little one-cell thick protrusions called microvilli. Okay. Okay. These are our roots. They literally are our roots. At the bottom of these microvilli, or what are called crypts, at the bottom of the crypts, there is a pocket of bacteria that are essential. And they're down there in storage. In fact, fun fact, we now know the appendix is not useless. It's one of these storage systems mm -hmm. to repopulate our gut. If you lose your appendix, you're screwed for that part of your storage system. But down at the bottom of these crypts, are these little collection of bacteria. And at the bottom of these crypts are our stem cells that actually repopulate these microvilli. So what happens is if we damage this lining, and boy, do we damage this lining, swallow an ibuprofen, it's like swallowing a hand grenade, take some food with Roundup in it. Roundup will destroy the lining of your gut. Uh, it's really good stuff. Roundup in itself will destroy your bacterial population. All right, really fast, because I, I think this is important. And for some reason, um, even though I've had you on the show before, I read you read the book, like the way that you've started talking about some of the places that you're going to find, also known as glyphosate, yeah. In the system that basically they're part of why they're doing it, it was originally created as a um or patented as a antibiotic Correct. which that was already shocking and then you said they use it as a way to be able to dry the crops out so they can harvest them on a specific day yeah. very good but then you said they don't no one wipes them off and so it ends up in cheerios and other things and i was like what like i thought if I was washing my vegetables, I was going to be fine. So this was a little bit startling to me. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, a little off subject, but they've looked at recently a study of 35 oat products in the United States, and all of them had glyphosate in them. Some of them at very high levels. Some of our breakfast cereals, most of our granolas, most of our granola bars. Most California wines, including a couple of organic wines, have glyphosate in them because the the fields are sprayed the weeds are sprayed with glyphosate mm. between the vines to kill the weeds research in, at mit has shown that not only does glyphosate kill bacteria because bacteria use the same reproductive pathway that plants use mm. it's the shikimate pathway Humans don't use the shikimate pathway. And so Monsanto, when they invented it, said, hey, uh, this kills plants, but don't worry, it doesn't kill humans because we don't use the same mm -hmm. pathway for life. And everybody said, oh, that's great. Uh, you know, this is a miracle. Uh, what they didn't tell anybody is the bacteria 
use the same shikimate mm. pathway. And again, they patented this as an antibiotic. They didn't patent it as an herbicide. What else are people doing that is um, the, breaking the bonds or killing the bacteria? The antibiotics in their food mm-hmm. or that they're taking themselves. In fact, study just out this morning shows that women who take antibiotics just you know because of urinary tract infection, sore throat, uh, have a much higher incidence of heart disease than women who don't. That's scary. Now, this gets into something in your book that was super freaky. Uh, I've never heard somebody say, and I'm not saying that no one has ever said it, I had never heard anybody say until reading this that um, heart disease is an autoimmune disease. Yeah. So because it ties into this point, how is heart disease, autoimmune disease, how does that start in the gut? What is that whole chain reaction? Okay. So um, Michael DeBakey, one of the premier originators of heart surgery from Houston, Texas, would always say that cholesterol has nothing to do with causing heart disease, that it's an innocent bystander Mm. that literally gets sucked into uh, inflammation at the wall of the blood vessel. And I use the example of, let's say, you know, I'm an alien and I'm, you know, circling above L.A. And I report back that I'm pretty sure that ambulances cause car accidents (laughs) because every time I see a car accident, there's an ambulance there and the ambulance must have caused it. Well, you know, causation, association is not causation. So the fact that we see cholesterol in deposits, and Mm. I see it, you know, every day in the operating room, there's cholesterol in these plaques, doesn't mean that the cholesterol caused the plaque. So I learned this as an infant heart transplant surgeon. What we found was, we thought, uh, naively, that if we got these hearts in as a newborn, that the immune system of the newborn would not be mature enough and would say, Oh yeah, that you know that's my heart. Uh, mm. I don't know any better, and yeah. it wouldn't attack it. Well, we were partially right, but as the years went and we studied these kids, they started to get uh, coronary artery disease. Their blood vessels got thicker and thicker. That is super interesting. And we're going, oh, what the heck? So, did they look just like somebody who we would have associated with too much cholesterol in their diet? It looks just like diabetic coronary artery disease. Interesting. Just like it. And so when you actually look at the blood vessels, the kids, the lining of the blood vessel is from the donor, from a foreigner. Mm. The blood going through is from the kid. And the blood says, wait a minute. These are foreign cells, and they're, I'm going to attack them. Just think of a splinter under your finger. You, you know, it gets all red. So that's inflammation. And what was happening was then cholesterol was basically coming as a patch, an ambulance, and it was getting caught up in this inflammation. So then we look at these adults who obviously don't have heart transplants, and you go, well, that's funny. This looks just like a kid who has, you know, somebody else's heart. And there's an attack on the blood vessels that looks identical as if that was a foreign object. Mm. 
So that got me going, you know, this is an immunologic reaction. And in just a few weeks, and I can't tell you the paper because it's embargoed, I'm giving a paper at the American Heart Association vascular biology meeting that makes a pretty good case that lectins, which are a foreign protein, mm -hmm. that can stick to sugar molecules on the surface of blood vessels, uh, are the cause of atherosclerosis in humans, and that removing lectins reduces the markers for that. All right, really fast. And we talked about this in our first issue or our first episode, but I, I think it bears repeating. Like, what's the real quick uh, breakdown of lectins and the the rhetoric you started using around kidney beans? I found really interesting. Yeah, so lectins are the plant defense system, one of the plant defense system. A pretty doggone good one. Plants do not want to be eaten. They don't want their babies eaten, and they have evolutionary pressures to mm. keep being eaten and have their babies not being eaten, and lectins are one of the ways to do this. They are sticky proteins that look for specific sugar molecules to stick to, and that incites an inflammatory response wherever they stick. We talked about joints wearing out. Joints do not come with a sell-by date or use-by date. There is no evidence that the wear and tear theory has anything to do with a human body. So we crazy. can constantly rebuild cartilage. Mm. But like I talk about in the book, cartilage is broken down by certain cells and rebuilt by other cells. And we can, if you had arthritis, we could stick a scope in you, suck out some of the fluid we could actually find bacterial particles in your joint fluid. Wow, okay, so really fast, because I know where you're going with that, but now, now connect those dots. How did those parts get into the joint? Lectins broke down the wall of your gut. And on the other side of your gut is 65% of all your white blood cells. 65% of your mm -hmm. immune system is lining your gut. What are they doing there? Because the gut is where the outside world gets through. Mm. And they're there to sound the high alert and attack them when they get through. One of the reasons we store fat in our gut, one of the reasons we have a beer belly or a wheat belly, is we are actually putting fat down where the action is. It's to supply the troops. Oh. That's why we put it there. In fact, when I operate on people with advanced coronary disease, there is a layer of fat that is on the surface of the blood vessels. And there is a perfect correlation to the amount of inflammation and disease in the blood vessel with the amount of fat surrounding the blood vessel. Whoa. This is in humans published studies. So we, this is not conjecture. And I reference this in all my books. Wow. Okay. So here's my understanding of fat 45 seconds ago, which may now be changing. Um, one, that fat is essentially an organ, mm -hmm. but I think of it as an energy storage unit mm -hmm. that we can certainly access and, and break down mm -hmm. and turn it into energy, uh, that the body is very efficient at burning ketones, certainly the brain. Um, so what exactly is it doing at these areas of inflammation? So maybe 15 years ago, we thought the fat was actually causing the inflammation because mm. wherever we found fat, there were lots of white blood cells. 
what I think recent information has proven is that the fat is not the evil guy that we thought it was, that the fat is there because of the inflammation, and the inflammation is there because you have a leak in your gut. You have a leaky gut. Interesting. Your white blood cells require huge amounts of energy to do their job. Okay, wow. And so you, it just, it's just like any army. You've got to have a supply line. You have to have food for the troops. All right, now let me ask a really difficult question. I have no idea if this even makes sense, but it makes sense to my layman's mind. So many people have gotten to a metabolic point of dysfunction so extreme that they really never access their fat stores. True. So if they're existing in that state and they have metabolic syndrome and the body's like, yo, here's the fat, take it. I, we have inflammation, get ready, white blood cells. You're gonna have all the energy that you could ever use, but the body doesn't know how to click over into that mechanism because insulin levels are elevated. Is the fat getting there and the white blood cells are unable to use it or that's a whole different thing and they're still able to use it? That's part of the problem. Oof. That's part of the problem. Yeah, let me use an example I used to use with my patients. Uh, the f the flu virus. So the virus has a has a barcode on it that our immune cells scan literally and say, oh, you know, that's a nasty virus. That's the flu virus. We know this guy. We need to get ready to attack this, mm -hmm. and we need to get all of our immune system up and running, and we need to make sure that the immune system has enough power to do this. So what do we do? We actually make you, me, hurt. Hurt to move, because if we move, the muscles are going to take all the energy. If you lay down, then all the energy is available for this battle to go after this virus. Mm. Our immune system literally reads barcodes mm. to tell whether somebody's a friend or a foe. And lectins have fascinating barcodes that mimic other uh, proteins in our body. And when this immune system is ramped up, the immune system goes around the body and looks for proteins that are lectins. And let's say they come to a thyroid and they go, oh my gosh, you know, this poor woman's thyroid is full of what appear to be lectins. They're not quite the same, but it's close enough and we should, you know, shoot to kill and we'll ask questions later. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to walk through the process that we've just discussed because wow, uh, for me anyway and for anybody listening that's like me, once I can picture it, once I can understand it, then it's like I can begin to manipulate it and predict what I should do and not do. Okay, so you eat something. It could be lectins, uh, which you'll find in the skin and seeds of nightshade vegetables sure. is one example. Yep. Or peanuts. Or peanuts. Uh, so you eat these things. They like uh, glyphosate, like um, ibuprofen apparently. They will go in and they'll disrupt um, my microbiome. They break down the single, the bonds between the single cell lining of my gut that allows either entire um, elements of proteins, in the case of lectins, or um, pieces of bacteria. Yep. I'm assuming dying pieces, dead pieces, a broken the cell, arm. Yeah, the of... cell wall of bacteria. It, it turns out when bacteria divide, and they do all the time, I mean, there's trillions and trillions and trillions of them, you make about anywhere from a half a pound to a pound of 
dead cell wall bacteria every day. Whoa. And so those pieces are normally excreted with mm-hmm. your poop. Um, most of your poop is actually bacteria. That's so weird. That's what it is. So anyhow, our immune system is so afraid of bacteria. They're supposed to stay on their side of the wall. Yep. That if they see the you know, signature of that bacterial cell wall... It doesn't know that it's not a whole bacteria. Mm. It doesn't know that it's dead. So we can take in human volunteers, LPSs, uh, dead bacteria, inject them into your bloodstream, and you will go into septic shock as if we put living bacteria in you. Whoa, because what's actually happening is my immune system is going crazy. Exactly. The immune system doesn't know any better. And so, holy cow, you know, there's there's thousands and millions of bacteria all of a sudden in us. And, you know, we got to do something. And they just start attacking, ah, like crazed monkeys going nuts. Yeah, exactly. And so those particles, whether they're the lectins, which... By the way, on lectins really fast, the whole notion of thinking about plants not as these inert things, which until starting to read you, I always did. I just thought of plants as is completely inert. When you talk about them as being sort of the world's most sophisticated chemical warfareist, that's where it's like, whoa. Then you begin to realize maybe what's really going on. Okay, so these lectins or particles of bacteria get into the bloodstream, immune system scans it, maybe they've ended up in the thyroid, maybe elsewhere, and it just fucking goes nuts. Starts attacking, you get inflammation, which has a whole host of knock-on effects from could be um, cholesterol trying to patch, could be the fat wrapping around the blood vessels or the arteries or whatever the case may be. And, you know, we're, we're now, most of us are now convinced that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and dementia is neuroinflammation. Okay. And what's... And what people are picking up on, because they're all going to talk about the uh, beta amyloid plaques. And you've talked about how some of the co- companies targeting that may actually be accelerating your yeah. onset of dementia, which is really terrifying. Really bad. Um, is that this is, again, the alien blaming the ambulance for car accidents. Yeah. So most amyloid is actually produced by bacteria in the gut. And Dale Bredesen keeps saying, he says, it's not the amyloid in the brain that we should be looking at. And no wonder $40 billion of investment in anti-amyloid drugs has been a total and useless failure. $40 billion. He says, because amyloid is produced in the gut by bacteria. And we know certain bacteria that make it and certain that don't. Mm. And why would we give the amyloid-producing bacteria what they want to eat, which is simple sugars and saturated fats, the Western diet. Mm. Plus, the amyloid can't get out of the gut unless your gut is leaky. It's too big a protein to be absorbed. So Dale and I, for years, have been saying, hey, guys, you're looking at the wrong spot to go after Alzheimer's. So really fast, let me ask, are you saying the beta amyloid plaques are not actually created in the brain and that they would never make their way to the brain? You won't make them unless they get to the brain and then stimulate more production. That's so weird. Why would the brain have the ability to produce something in the brain that would never be turned on unless it started from a problem in the gut. That seems way counterintuitive. 
it's basically so we now we now know we have we have a leaky brain and there's okay. increased meaning things are crossing the blood brain barrier that, that should not that would have never done it and okay. there's actually a beautiful new paper that probably explains why cholesterol and amyloid and dementia actually um, coexist in people with the ApoE4 gene, um, the, quote, Alzheimer's gene. Um, I got interested in ApoE4, which 30% of people carry, uh, as a heart surgeon because it causes heart disease. And Dale Bredesen got interested in it because it causes dementia, Alzheimer's. Mm. And lo and behold, we now know there's an intimate connection between carrying the ApoE4 gene and how cholesterol can be mischievous to you and your brain and not necessarily somebody who doesn't carry mm -hmm. that gene. What is the ApoE gene, what is it doing? Great question. So it's a, it's a carrier molecule mm -hmm. of, among other things, cholesterol. And if you carry a four mutation uh, or a double four mutation, you do statistically have an increased risk of developing Alzheimer's. You also have an increased risk of developing heart disease. Because it's doing because what? Because it changes the way cholesterol is transported. Interesting. It's more efficient? It's, so it's getting more ambulances it's, to the scene? It's actually worse. Let's suppose uh, the ApoE4 is a subway, mm -hmm. and it's carrying cholesterol. And it stops at a subway stop, and cholesterol gets off. And it goes into the cell, does its thing. And the cell says, okay, I've got plenty. Thanks a lot. You can take the rest of the cholesterol back and take it someplace else. So it gets back on the subway, and the subway moves on. With the ApoE4 gene, what happens is it carries the cholesterol to the cell on the subway, but when the extra cholesterol tries to get back in, the subway doors are closed. Super clear. All right? And that's the problem. You know, this is a transport problem. It's dropping the stuff off just fine, but normally it'd be picking up the stuff that, you know, mm -hmm. isn't needed. But it, it, so it builds up. Yeah. So it's kind of a double whammy. So now let's walk people through step by step because we haven't even gotten to mitochondria in detail yet, which we'll get there in a minute. It's such an important part of the story. But so first, I want to um, begin to help people to understand what it is that breaks the junction in their gut, because that's such a huge part of this. Uh, what is it that triggers the breakdown? Let's start with that. Well, so there's you know, there's three kind of major components. So first of all, and we don't need to talk about this extensively, but lectins are plant... Read the plant paradox. You yeah, go read all into that. They're plant proteins that were designed by plants to protect themselves and their seeds, their babies, from being eaten by making their predator ill to pay attention. Number two particularly if we're eating a typical American diet with lots of saturated fats, lots of fats in general, and lots of sugars, we in our gut have classes of bacteria, and we have 10,000 different bacteria. And I divide them into gut buddies, good bacteria, and gang members. Gang members love saturated fats and simple sugars. 
And the problem with these gang members is that they divide and die, and pieces of these bacteria called LPSs, lipopolysaccharides, and in all my books I call them little pieces of shit because that's literally what they are. These guys actually hop on fat molecules and ride through our gut, even without a leaky gut. And when they get to the other side, the immune system cannot tell the difference between a living bacteria and a bacterial cell wall. It's so impressive that, for instance, we could take you or me and inject these LPSs into our bloodstream, and both of us would go into septic shock as if living bacteria had been put into us. So, believe it or not, in the American diet, 24 hours a day, we're causing leaky gut, we're assaulting our immune system with these LPSs. And it's no wonder that just from that, we all, you know, are just a giant ball of inflammation. Okay, so um, for my own sake, it'll be interesting to tease out some of the ideas around fat. But first, I want to um, stay on this point just for a second of how people end up getting in a state where they're prone to having that junction break. So I'm going to make some assertions. You tell me or assertions. You tell me if these are correct assertions or not. Um, so one that. Part of the problem is a breakdown in the actual microbiome, so the integrity of a well-balanced microbiome. So you've probably done something to assault that microbiome for a long time. It could be a very non-diverse diet, so some of the bugs are just dying out, and so because they're starved to death, Correct. and so you get you know some dysbiosis there. You've got people just shoveling sugar in their face that comes in a gazillion different forms that causes all kinds of havoc, not only in the microbiome, but elsewhere. And, you know, we'll get into some of the other ramifications, I'm sure, later. Um, antibiotics, which are causing that. Glyphosate, which is causing that. So it's like there are so many things that are assaulting our guts. And the reason I'm, I'm prefacing all of this is because one thing that I've had tremendous success with in my life is high fat, low carb. So I'm curious to see like it in my N of one experience, fat of certain kinds anyway, do not seem to be problematic. N of one, I'm well aware of that. So, you know, everybody freaking out that that is not empirical data. I understand. Um, but you know, there's also obviously a, a pretty interesting carnivore movement. Um, so is it certain types of fat? Is it only fat when you've compromised your microbiome or is it no, no, no. Fat is in and of itself an assault upon even a healthy microbiome. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. 
Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. So I'm, I'm the guy who's famous for saying the only purpose of food is to get olive oil in your mouth. So I'm absolutely not anti-fat. And in all my books, I have a ketogenic plant paradox chapter of exactly that. But having said that, interestingly enough, uh, most fats, even including olive oil, are transported across the wall of our gut using these carriers called chylomicrons. And it's the chylomicrons that these LPSs hop onto. So interesting. Are the chylomicrons a metabolite of some kind? No, chylomicrons are the uh, moving van that literally carries fat across your gut wall. Fat transverses your gut wall in a totally different way than sugars or proteins. The exception to that is medium chain triglycerides. Now, medium chain triglycerides, MCT oil, are a saturated fat but they are a unique saturated fat in that they're water-soluble. So they transverse the gut wall without chylomicrons, number one, and they don't enter our lymphatic system where chylomicrons go 
they go directly from our gut through our portal vein into our liver. And in the liver, MCTs actually tell the liver to make ketone bodies. So whenever you eat MCT oil or eat MCTs in other forms, you will automatically, do not stop, do not pass go, do not collect $200, you will automatically make ketones in your liver. And they'll be released. So help me understand the difference then. So if, if not all fats are bad, what are the fats that are bad that are causing this problem? I didn't, I didn't get that. So sadly, a lot of the saturated animal fats are some of the biggest mischief makers. But the other Specifically fats, because they're feeding the wrong bacteria. They're feeding the wrong bacteria. And if you don't have these gram-negative bacteria in your gut in huge amounts, you will not produce LPSs, lipopolysaccharides. So you could have a very high-fat diet as long as you don't have these gang members in your, in your life. And those gang members got there, quite frankly, by eating a lot of sugar. So help me then understand. So um, there, you said there is a time for a carnivore diet. I'm guessing there's a, per, a pretty narrow band where you would recommend that. But what would that narrow band be? So we, we will use it uh, for an elimination diet where we've got someone who is really intolerant to plant lectins in general. And we do see these people. Uh, they're totally intolerant to raw plants. Most of the time, um, the lectins in plants can be cooked away. There are exceptions. Beans, you cannot cook the lectins away. Uh, wheat, you cannot cook lectins away. You can't pressure cook wheat to get rid of the lectins. Oats have a uh, molecule that mimics gluten. Corn has virtually identical molecules to a gluten. In fact, 70% of people who are sensitive to gluten react to corn as if it was wheat. And so many patients, yeah, you know, so many patients that I see on a gluten free diet for celiac disease, for extreme leaky gut, they're eating corn because it's gluten free. And when we take corn away from them, so many of them resolve the problem. And, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, I've been eating corn chips and corn muffins and corn bread. And I thought that was, you know, gluten free. Well, it is, but mm. it cross reacts. So if you, if you combine a carnivore diet with what I recommend in the book, which is time restricted eating or compressing your eating window, you can, I want to say, get away with a carnivore diet for a period of time. Um, there's a, a very famous young lady who follows a carnivore diet who really wants to get off the carnivore diet, uh, but she can't. Um, and I think we've seen this. And if uh, we were going to really simplify why she can't, I'm guessing it's it is simply a question of the microbiome, right? Like if we could uh, repopulate her microbiome, whether through fecal microbial transplant or magic, whatever, but if we could repopulate her gut, then theoretically she would be able to get off it. The only reason that people get trapped in something like that is because of the changes in their microbiome. 
Yes. Um, one of the things that I, um, I think is critically important for our health in so many ways that I talk about in the energy paradox is we now know that the, the microbiome, number one, has to be d- diverse. We know that the Western diet produces the worst kind of non-diverse microbiome that you could possibly, you know, wish for, and you don't wish for that. That's number one. Number two, if you don't give the microbiome plant fibers, which are prebiotic fibers, these are soluble fibers that we can't digest, but the microbiome eats, the microbiome can't produce what are called postbiotics. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about this exciting discovery of postbiotics. Yeah. Help me understand what the difference between a postbiotic and a metabolite is. Okay. So literally when bacteria ferment uh, fibers, then they the fermentation process produces both short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, like acetate, like propionate, and they produce a series of gases, hydrogen gas, hydrogen sulfide gas, the rotten egg smell, methane, carbon dioxide, nitric oxide. We used to think that these were just farts that everybody made and they didn't do anything. But uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I usually present a talk at the uh, uh, World Congress of Microbiota, which which happens in Paris (laughs) before COVID. And the organizer is a professor from Paris, uh, Dr. Marvin Edes. He pulled me aside about eight years ago and he says, you know, the microbiome talks to mitochondria. And I'm going, oh, that's interesting. How do you know that? He says, well, it has to, because mitochondria, the little energy-producing organelles in all of our cells, are actually engulfed bacteria. And the bacteria of the microbiome talk to their sisters. And they control what happens to the mitochondria. They either tell them to produce energy or things are bad in the engine room, cut back on energy production. I'm going, well, this is fascinating, but why hasn't anybody discovered this? He said, you watch, Uh, we will. And sure enough, he was right. So we now know that these, they're now called postbiotics. The gases are called gasomessengers or gasotransmitters. And the short-chain fatty acids, we now know, nourish the gut wall, number one, and also nourish brain cells, number two. So the discovery of this language, and it's literally called a trans-kingdom language, where set of bacteria talk to us, in particular our mitochondria, and it won the Nobel Prize for medicine a few years ago with the discovery. Is of it ho- specifically the gas or is it the gas and the postbiotic? So the gas is a postbiotic. So okay. the, are the short, the short chain fatty acids considered a postbiotic? Correct. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're all classified. And what as- do they do? Is it, is, uh, Hey, nitric oxide has arrived. Therefore do this. And the flip side, nitric oxide has not arrived and therefore do that? Correct. So for instance, we know that hydrogen sulfide, the rotten egg smell, 
if you produce the right amount of hydrogen sulfide, you will not produce atherosclerotic disease, plaque in coronary arteries, despite a monstrously high level of cholesterol in the diet. But if you don't produce the right amount of hydrogen sulfide, it's as if, you know, let the hell loose from L- LDL. Hold on, hold on. Oh, yeah, that yeah, sounds yeah, like yeah. a life-changing uh, <laughs> revelation. I've never heard that before. So I can have freakishly high uh, cholesterol, but if I get the right signal from the my microbiome Correct. in the form of gas, then my body's like, we're good. We're not going to form the the, the plaque. atherosclerotic plaque. That is like the hardest word in the English language. I know. Yeah. Uh, that's crazy. Why are people not talking about that? Because there's no money in it. You know, as statin drugs are make a lot of money. Um, you know, and this is, you know, when I look back at the man who changed my life 25 years ago, Big Ed, and watched him clean out the, you know, inoperable plaque in his coronary arteries. By, Did you see him under the knife or was he uh, not surgical? So, yeah, interesting enough, he had so much plaque in all his blood vessels, you couldn't put stents in them. You couldn't do bypasses because there wasn't any place to land. And like so many people, he would go around the country looking for idiots like me to operate on him, to take him on. That's kind of what I did. And he spent six months going to major centers, and I've named them before. um, And everybody turned him down, said, yep, go away. Nothing we can do for you. Well, during the six months, he went on a diet, and he started taking a bunch of supplements from a health food store. And he lost 45 pounds in six months. Now, he was still a big guy. I call him Big Ed because he was 265 when I met him. So he arrives in my office carrying his angiogram, the cardiac catheterization, from six months previous. And I look at it, and I go, you know, everybody's right. Nothing we can do for you. You know, sorry. And he says, wait a minute. You know, look, I've been on a diet. I'm taking all these supplements. Maybe I did something. And I said, well, you know, good for you for losing weight, but that's not going to do anything in here. And he says, look, what do we got to lose? Let's do another angiogram. And I said, okay. So in six and months that's time. putting a camera in his veins. It, it, yeah, it's doing, putting dye in his veins and taking a 3D picture of where the blockages are. And in six months time, 50% of the blockages are now gone. Now, he's still got blockages, but now there's open spaces where I could land a bypass. So, if I knew what I knew now, I'd say, great job. See you in six months. They'll probably be all cleaned out. But I didn't know that. So, I said, great. You know, we're going to do an operation on you. And we did a five-vessel bypass, and I'm pretty smart. And then I said, "Um, tell me about this diet and let me look at those supplements. And son of a gun, this guy had actually put himself on a diet that was my thesis as an undergraduate at Yale on what turned a great ape into a human being. And I was so shocked that, you know, this guy did this that I put myself on my thesis and I lost 70 pounds. I was a big, fat art surgeon even though I was running 30 miles a week and going to the gym one hour a day. So that's a long way of saying that he actually was the guy who opened my eyes that 
we've got this all wrong. Yeah, it's it's bananas, man. Every time I talk to you, I mean, forget your book, which is already just chock full of enlightening things, but that that's really crazy. So you say in the book, you make a prediction that in the future, we're going to realize uh, a couple things. One, you say that you refer to the gut as the first brain and not the second brain. But the other thing is this gut gas brain axis. And I've never heard anybody talk about it before. And just to, to re-anchor everybody, we're, we're talking about energy and your body's ability to generate energy. And you've got your gut, which is far more complicated than anybody could possibly realize. It's communicating to the organs inside your cell or the organelles inside your cells that generate the actual energy that are themselves bacteria that have their own DNA, which is fascinating unto itself. And all of this then is also having an effect. I won't just say communicating because I think it's more than that. Having an effect on the brain, which is then having massive effects, whether it's fatigue, whether it's the the fogginess, which was the worst part of what I went through. So you just blew my mind with the whole gas communication thing and how it can even play out with plaque. Now, mitochondria. We have to talk about the the idea of um, the the traffic jam that ends up happening. I think it's really important for people. You've already mentioned time restricted, but now talk to me in in the context of that traffic jam because this to me was a big player in why you feel lethargic if you feel like you're lacking energy. Yeah, so mitochondria produce energy from either glucose, which comes from the carbohydrates we eat, or amino acids, proteins that we eat, or from free fatty acids, fats that we eat or that we have stored that we produce. And normally, mitochondria use one of those substances at a time. And quite frankly, if we actually ate whole foods, like I talk in the book, like our great-grandparents did, normally carbohydrates, sugar molecules, would arrive first for processing. And mitochondria are really good at using one thing at a time. Then, after the carbohydrates are gone, protein takes a long time to digest into amino acids, and they arrive second. Fat literally takes a circuitous route. It's not even absorbed into our bloodstream. It's absorbed into our lymph system, and then comes around later. But what's happened with our processed foods and our ultra-processed foods is that we have had made perfect pre-digested sugar, amino acids, and small fat molecules that literally instantaneously enter our bloodstream and wham into our mitochondria simultaneously. And it's literally, uh, since both of us live in the LA area, it is like rush hour traffic in LA with all of these streets leading into our freeways, and nothing moves. And what we're doing now, the average American work by Sachin Panda at the Salk Institute in San Diego, is show that the average American is eating for 16 hours a day. And 60% of the food we eat is processed. So we're just constant in rush hour. It's like the 405, 24 hours a day, as you and I know, and nothing moves. So if we look at energy production, 
as literally cars moving down through a freeway, it's no wonder that even though we're eating huge amounts of calories, we have no energy because we've literally log jammed the mitochondria. And just as a fun, fun side note, the first pre-digested food that was actually advertised as a benefit was Kellogg's cornflakes. It was actually advertised as the first pre-digested food. And why anybody would want to have their food pre-digested, like most of mm. our food is now, you can thank Kellogg's for doing that over 100 years ago. DNP, dinitrophenol. Phenol. Hmm. Where have I heard that word before? Polyphenols. Polyphenols are used by plants to protect their energy-producing organelles, which are their mitochondria, but they're called chloroplasts. So let's go back to us for just a second. Oxygen, we have to have oxygen to make ATP normally. Oxygen is very damaging to our mitochondria. All these free oxygen radicals, blah, blah, blah. So we can't live without oxygen, but we can't live with, with it. And so we have to you know, sop up the damage the oxygen does. Plants, on the other hand, have to have sunlight. And they kind of reverse engineer. They take photons from sunlight, combine it with CO2, and they make glucose and ATP. Sunlight is damaging to the plant mitochondria, the chloroplast. So they actually generate polyphenols to protect their mitochondria from damage, their chloroplasts. We get to see every fall the polyphenols in plants because the green chlorophyll goes away and all of those beautiful colors of yellows, oranges, reds, dark colors are the polyphenols that the plant generated to protect and uncouple the mitochondria of plants. And it turns out the way they protect the mitochondria is to uncouple them, to make them work less hard. And the less hard their mitochondria work, the less damage sunlight does to them. Now, we eat plants, and the polyphenols in plants do two things. Number one, we don't absorb polyphenols from plants very well. But our bacteria actually love polyphenols. They're actually a prebiotic fiber for bacteria. Mm. And the bacteria then convert those polyphenols into absorbable polyphenols, which then go to our mitochondria and uncouple them. It's, I can, every time I say this, I hear the Lion King, the circle of life playing in my head. You know, oh, you know, we eat the plants, but then we die and the mm. plants eat us. So the plants are protecting themselves with polyphenols. When we eat the plant polyphenols, we uncouple our mitochondria the same way. There's the benefit of polyphenols. Okay, so they are, technically we're getting like a metabolite of the bacteria processing the polyphenols. Correct. It, it isn't showing up as a ketone, Nope. So how many things trigger the uncoupling? So we know ketones do it as a signaling molecule. We've got a whole host of polyphenols. Are some polyphenols better? 
So a whole host of polyphenols. You you choose the polyphenol. I'll show you a paper that shows the action of that polyphenol is to uncouple mitochondria. I'll give you from last week. Um, one of my compounds at Gundry MD is called Total Restore, which is, a, my humble opinion, a really good gut repairing compound, gut wall compound. One of the things that I used long before I used that was a compound called wormwood. And people probably have heard of wormwood. It's in a lot of compounds to repair the gut. And just for fun, uh, last week uh, I, I saw a paper that a type of wormwood uh, worked by uncoupling mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And I went, what the heck? I didn't know wormwood could do that. So I you know, started Googling wormwood and uncoupling mitochondria. Do this in your spare time. Great fun. And lo and behold, five papers come up that wormwood mechanism of action is uncoupling mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And so you start going down this, this rabbit hole and you find out that there's literally just one thing that makes all the difference in a person's health, and that is hitting the right dose of mitochondrial uncoupling and getting the compounds that will do that. And just to pique everybody's interest, there's an interesting theory of aging called the rate of living hypothesis. And the rate of living hypothesis is that basically you only have so many calories that you're granted in your life. That you can process. Yeah, if you use up those calories quickly, that's the end. If you use up those calories slowly, uh, that's great. And it fits pretty good. Little tiny animals don't live very long. They have really super high metabolic rates. Big animals like an elephant uh, live a long time, and they have fairly low metabolic rate. The problem with that theory is birds. Birds are very small in the scheme of things, but a hummingbird in captivity, which has one of the highest basal metabolic rates measured, right. can live 10 years. A parrot can live 80 to 100 years. What? Yeah. Guess what? birds do better than any creature mitochondrial uncoupling bingo they there have the, it is they have the most uncoupled mitochondria of any species okay wow. now because i've read the book i feel like i'm cheating a little bit but uh so birds probably are dinosaurs yeah that yeah. crossed and so are we assuming that due to asteroid impact they became birds because they were already good at mitochondrial uncoupling, and that's how they were able to survive that period? I think it's this beautiful theory. I don't think anybody's actually, you know, actually spouted that out loud. But, yeah, I mean, they are the last dinosaurs. It's very interesting. So given that we are descended from mammals that also survived that period, it certainly makes a lot of sense that we would have survived if we already had that ability, and then I know humans, like by the time we became humans, there were twice that I think we were forced through these really narrow yep. periods where yep. there were yeah, very yeah. few humans left. Yeah, we were down 60,000 years ago. We were down probably to one woman and 
probably a, a few guys. She's it got that small. Yeah, she's mitochondrial Eve. All of us uh, can be traced back to one female. Whoa. Yeah, all of us. And you know, just just so everybody knows, mitochondria actually are they have their own DNA, mm-hmm. their own genome. Mitochondria are only transmitted from the female. Uh, you and I know we're just drones. We we have no useful purpose other than being a drone. So we we don't give any mitochondrial DNA. Mm-hmm. So you can actually look at mitochondrial DNA. So there's mitochondrial DNA in the egg. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah, but there's none of the sperm. Uh, no mitochondria go into the egg. That's really And what's really cool, and I've talked about this before, I mean, what's really do-do-do-do, we get all of our microbiome initially from our mother mm. passing through the birth canal, hopefully. Yep. And so our bacteria are female, and our mitochondria are female. And as I've talked about and other people have proven, these female bacteria talk to their sisters, the female mitochondria, and they literally text each other. And that language was discovered and got the Nobel Prize um, of postbiotics. And I talk a lot about postbiotics as well, the communication system between the microbiome and their sisters, the mitochondria. And it's like, I mean, this is crazy. I mean, the design, you just have to sit there and and marvel at, at the design. And then you start marveling at, okay, how do we tweak the benefits of this Mm. design how do we maximize the benefits of that design and that's why one of the cool things is yeah we can uncouple mitochondria via a ketogenic diet a high fat ketogenic diet no question about it but do we want to do that 24 7 no because eventually like you mentioned you will become insulin resistant to stop the muscles from stealing the calories, and you'll eventually start losing muscle mass, eventually, if you continue 24-7 ketosis for a long time. So you want to cycle in and out of ketosis on a 24-hour basis. And the book shows, okay, here's some tricks. Um, Let's do intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating. Let's stay in ketosis for 15, 16 hours a day. So what window do you recommend? So uh, Dr. Matheson from the NIH, from the National Institutes of Aging, wrote a beautiful paper a couple of years ago um, that shows probably six hours is the best window. Okay. Six hours of eating. Um, 18 fasts, six 18, eating. yeah, fast, uh, six hours. He Does showed, he have an opinion on number of meals in the six hours? It actually doesn't matter. And I go into that, again, there's a lot of fun, nerdy stuff in here. Uh, a guy by the name of Raphael DeCabo, also at the NIH, showed that all the calorie restriction literature, and calorie restriction, you know, cutting 30% of all the calories you eat every day is really the only bona fide proven way to extend lifespan across mm-hmm. multiple species. But the problem is it's unsustainable. Um, there is a calorie restriction society in the United States. Uh, it's hilarious. They're, they're miserable individuals. They're cold. They, uh, they're miserable. They're hungry. Uh, Why aren't they warm? 
Because if they're putting themselves in starvation mode, they're they've, triggering this whole thing. They've literally now gone into a thrifty gene mode. They're Got it. so far so you down pass the line. Through you pass this. through this. Correct. Then, you know, they're, they're so far down the line. But the Cabo said, hey, wait a minute. I think we've got this calorie restriction wrong because we're controlling the animal's food and we're putting the food in their cage and we're giving them X amount of food. I wonder if the time of day that we put the food into the animal's cage and the time they're eating the food and the time they're not eating the food was really what the difference was. So he designed an experiment, uh, which is really kind of cool. He designed an experiment based on the rhesus monkey studies of the University of Wisconsin and the National Institutes of Aging. And these were calorie-restricted monkeys, but only the University of Wisconsin study showed extended longevity. The uh, NIA study showed no extended longevity. And they had different diets. And he said, I'll tell you what, I think you guys are both wrong. I'll bet you it's the time of eating. So he designed an experiment where they had a calorie-restricted group of both diets for rats. But he had a third group that, that all their food came out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And animals ate it quite rapidly. And they still actually, they ate up all their calories in about 8 to 12 hours, and then they were fasting, about 12 hours at least. Mm. And that's a long time for a rat. They compared them to rats who got their food all day long and all night long. The rats who got food all day long, all night, had no metabolic flexibility. They couldn't make mm. a change between burning sugar and burning fats. Right. The rats who got full calories but had it put out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon had metabolic flexibility. The rats who were calorie-restricted also had metabolic flexibility. So then they looked at longevity. The rats that had a full day's calories but ate at 3 o'clock in the afternoon lived 11% longer than the rats who got a full day's of calories that they ate all day and all night. Hmm. Now, for us, that equates to a 10-year increase in lifespan. Now, is that on the same amount of calories? On the same amount of calories. That's crazy. Well, it's not so crazy because the Italian athlete study proves the point in humans. And what's that? This is a really cool study. They took Italian cyclists, and they put them on a training table for three months. And most people know what a training table is. You guys, here it is. This is, this is the food you're getting. And everybody had to eat the exact same food, the exact same amount of calories. All they did is change how often the guys got to eat. Mm -hmm. One group, they got three meals a day. One group got breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning, got lunch at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, had to finish dinner by 8 o'clock at night, a 12-hour eating window. The other group, same food, got breakfast at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, lunch at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and had to finish dinner at 8 o'clock at night. Same amount of calories. Mm. Followed for three months. Same exercise program. The group that ate a 12-hour window stayed the same weight. The group that ate in a 7-hour window lost weight, lost significant amount of weight, mm. but their m performance was the same. Here's the best part, maybe the take-home message. You and I know there's 
probably our best method to predict longevity is a blood test called insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1. Probably the best indicator of whether mTOR is activated or not. Uh, the guys who ate the seven-hour window, their IGF-1s plummeted. Mm. The guys who ate the 12-hour window had no change in their IGF-1. So the take-home message was it wasn't the calories the guys were eating. It was the time period that they were eating the calories. Now, why is that? Early on, I mentioned that most of us, if we have metabolic flexibility, start making ketones about eight hours after we stop eating. And by 12 hours, we've really started you know, mm. kicking up our ketones. So those are the 12-hour guys. They're just kicking into ketone big time, and then they eat. Right. stops the ketone production. The other guys, they're kicking into ketones, and then they're waiting another five hours to get their first bite of food. So they're producing ketones five additional hours. Mm -hmm. So they got five hours every day to uncouple their mitochondria before they go back and stop the process. So it's the cycling in and mm -hmm. out of getting the benefits of ketosis without full ketosis that makes all the difference. It's amazing. Okay, so now that we understand the mechanism, which at least for me is huge, once I understand it, I don't know, there's something happens in my brain, I can really get behind it. Um, give us a quick thumbnail sketch. Animal meat? Plant? Like, how should we be eating? What's, what's that look like in a rough nutshell? Well, here's one of the big revelations for me. Um, as you know, I, I'm the only nutritionist that spent most of my career living in a blue zone, Loma Linda, California. Uh, it's the only blue zone in the United States, by the way. Sad. And one of the things that shocked me when, when I moved to Loma Linda was the amount of fat and particularly dairy fat in the Adventist diet. And I met with the nutritionist at the hospital and because the, the food in the hospital cafeteria, and Adventists are uh, vegetarians mm -hmm. or vegans, about 36% uh, of Adventists are vegetarians, uh, about 5% are vegans, uh, number are pescatarians. But so a great deal of the Adventists are vegetarians or at least pescatarians. Right. And yet 50% of their diet was dairy fat from yogurt 50 percent 50 percent yogurts a lot and cheeses and i'm going you you're killing you know my my patients you know i'm a heart surgeon you know i'm a cardiologist you're killing my patients and they go uh no we're not uh we're the longest living people in the united states mm -hmm. uh, you know do your homework i go you're you're killing our patients so as I was researching this book, uh, I said, you know, the Adventists eat a lot of cheese and dairy. Let's look at the other blue zones. So you look at Sardinia, which is another blue zone. You look at the Nagoyan Peninsula in Costa Rica, which is another blue zone. You look at Icaria, which is a Greek island. And lo and behold, the Sardinians are unique in that 
the Sardinians are basically two populations. There's the folks who live up in the mountain and the folks who live down by the sea. It turns out only the people who live up in the mountain have longevity. Ah, see, that's interesting. And they're sheep herders and goat herders. And they eat huge amounts of goat and sheep cheese. Hmm. The folks who live down by the sea don't, aren't goat and sheep herders, and they don't eat goat and sheep cheese. So there was a beautiful paper, I didn't put it in the book, but I'll tell you, that showed that the difference was the fact that these guys were eating goat and sheep cheese. So now you go, well, wait a minute, what's so cool about goat and sheep cheese? Something in there that's uncoupling mitochondria. You, I have a hunch. You got it. It turns out that 30% of the calories in goat and sheep milk are medium-chain triglycerides, MCTs. In fact, most of the MCT fats are named after the Latin word for goat, capra. There's capric acid, caprylic acid, uh, goat, because goat milk and sheep milk have tons of MCTs. And remember, MCTs are unique in that they go directly to the liver and generate ketones. Mm. So these guys were generating ketones just by eating goat and sheep cheese. Let's jump to the Nagoyan Peninsula. Now, a lot of bean eating and corn eating in right. Costa Rica and on the Nagoyan Peninsula. But what's so unique about the Nagoyan Peninsula is that they're goat and sheep herders. Mm. And there's a beautiful paper that showed the difference is the goat and sheep cheese, not the beans and corn. But cows don't do it for some reason. No, they don't make MCTs. Hmm. Let's jump to Acaria. Two factors in Acaria. They're goat and sheep herders. They have yogurt every day. They have goat and sheep cheese every day. And they eat a weed, a common weed called purslane, as a major part of their diet. People see purslane growing in sidewalk cracks all the time. It's uh, moss roses, portulaca that people have in their gardens. They eat it as salads. It turns out that purslane has an amazing short-chain omega fat called alpha-linolenic acid that I profile in the book. Alpha-linolenic acid is magnificent for uncoupling mitochondria. So it turns out that four of the five blue zones get their benefit by uncoupling mitochondria. Mm. And it turns out that the Okinawans, 85% of the ancient Okinawan diet was a purple sweet potato. It wasn't rice. They don't do it. It wasn't soybeans. They only use miso. Mm. It was the purple sweet potato, which is full of the purple polyphenols. Do they not have that anymore? Now the Okinawans are eating a Western diet. Oof. But, so all of these guys were uncoupling their mitochondria. All right. So cool. eating goat and sheep cheese, yeah. purple Okinawan potatoes, yeah. and we're going to uncouple until the end of time. It basically, yeah. So, I mean, the great thing is you don't have to suffer eating an incredibly boring, high-fat diet if you have goat and sheep cheese. My wife and I literally have goat or sheep cheese every night before dinner now. But you're plant-leaning, right? So, Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, again, when, I, when we talk about eat the rainbow and everybody talks about eating the rainbow, what we're actually saying is eat polyphenol-laden mm -hmm. plants. 
That's literally what we're saying, because the rainbow are those polyphenols. Right. And I go into the ancient spice trade from the Middle Ages. Yes, you do. And it turns out, you look at those spices that people were ready to pay exorbitant mm. amount of money for. In fact, you asked an interesting question in the book, and you said, was this the original drug trade? Yeah. And that's interesting, because when you start to learn the history of, like, the spice wars, like, people were killing people in, like, genocide levels for oh, spices. Yeah, yeah and in fact, 50% very... of the people on these ocean voyages on for the spice trade died. Jesus. And so... It had know, to be something pretty worthwhile. Yeah, this was drug trade, and they were... The trade they were actually doing was for polyphenols. Mm. I mean, for instance, cinnamon was huge. Cloves were huge. And I even have a fun chuckle. Um, the gift of the Magi uh, in the Bible, uh, two of the three gifts were actually frankincense and myrrh, mm -hmm. which are polyphenols, and both are shown to uncouple mitochondria. So interesting. So they brought the little baby Jesus mitochondrial uncouplers. Yes, they did. Who knew? Yes, they, knew. they did. Uh, I was on my way to Orange County to a PBS uh, fundraiser, um, and I get a call on the phone on the way down to Orange County that the person, a, a young millennial who was going to do the fundraiser with me, uh, called in and said she didn't have it in her to come in today to uh, to do the fundraiser. And I said, oh, gosh, you know, anything wrong? They said, no, she's just, you know, she's exhausted and she's tired and she just doesn't have it in her. But well, don't worry, we, we got another person, we'll be fine. But that phrase stuck with me for, for days afterwards that, you know, a millennial would be calling in and saying, I don't have it in me. And I realized that uh, when I first started my restorative medicine practice over 20 years ago, at least half the people I saw, uh, would we would use a medical code, a diagnostic code called fatigue and malaise. And uh, it never really, and it always went away. And so it never really occurred to me that I was you know, treating an energy problem. But when she said that, I said, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm an energy doctor all along, and I need to tell people what's going on. So that was the impetus for the book. All right. So one of the things you go into in the book um, is around cellular energy and so and, and mitochondria specifically. And I've been asked a lot about how I maintain my energy levels, you know, whether it's running a company or speaking or whatever. I once stood and answered questions for 11 and a half hours. Um, and one of the questions was, you know, how how do you generate the energy? And my answer was, well, the only real truthful answer to that is it's at a cellular level. So it has to do with diet. It has to do with exercise. And you do get some benefit from psychological energy. Um, but I had always been, you know, since my sort of mid to early 20s, I've been working out. I've been very conscious about my diet. And so it just sort of felt second nature until during COVID, probably, I don't know, this is maybe six months ago now, I started to get psychotically fatigued, brain fog, just like so tired. I, I was like, am I losing my will to fight, to live? It was really unnerving. And I thought, okay, what would you tell somebody if they were asking you this question? And I said, well, my answer would be, I don't know what's going on with you, but I promise it's your diet. And so I was like, okay, well, if that's true, what's going on in your diet? And uh, for me, 
I started thinking about the only thing that I was eating a lot of was this like pecan pudding and it was delicious. And I loved it the most. I can't even begin to tell you how much I enjoyed this thing. And because it was like raw pecans and everything, I thought, I, you know, it can't be that, but it's the only thing I ate a lot. So let me cut it out. And it changed in like 48 hours. It was surreal. So I know the punchline because I've read the book, but walk people through how it's possible that something I'm eating simply by removing it could restore my energy. Yeah, the I, about 80% of the patients I see now are autoimmune uh, disease patients who have kind of been all over the country, all over the world, and have not gotten a resolution in their autoimmune disease, or they're on immunosuppressant drugs and they don't want to be. And what we find 100% of the time, and I can assure you it's 100% of the time, that all these people suffer from leaky gut and or, you know, intestinal permeability, if you want the exact term. And 2,500 years ago. Which is just for people that don't know it, is? Is literally the lining of our intestines is the same surface area as a tennis court. We and have, it's only one cell thick, right? It's only one cell thick. And the cells are stuck together with what are called tight junctions. So everything we eat, including all the bacteria that live in us, uh, are only one cell away from us. From And 80% of our immune system, white blood cells, are sitting right behind this wall, waiting for troublemakers to come through. And your example is actually really good. Hidden in one of my books, the Plant Paradox Cookbook, the original one, there's a little line that says pecans have a very interesting lectin. And I can't tell you the number of people who are sensitive to the lectin in pecans, particularly if you eat them raw. So you, quite frankly, undoubtedly, are one of those people who are sensitive to pecans. And these little prote proteins, lectins, actually made your gut porous. So, so what? Well, the whole book is literally about that. Your immune system requires huge amounts of energy to do battle with whatever is coming across your border. And it takes... Really fast on that. That was one thing from the book that um, I was wondering, is, is there data coming out? Because in the book, you talk a lot about the Hadza tribe, the studies that are coming out, how people compared. You've got the Hadza moving around all the time, hunting and gathering, and then you've got somebody sitting at their desk. And when you measure the energy output of those two people, you would think the sedentary person was way lower in energy output, but they're actually the same. Now, is it just your hunch that that isn't true? Or is there actual data around the um, the sort of energy requirements of the um, inflammation, basically? I'll use a, a great pre-COVID example that I use in the book. You catch the flu, the, and everybody gets really achy. You feel awful. You don't want to move. You don't want to read. You don't want to think. You just want to, you know, binge watch Netflix laying in your bed. And everybody says, well, yeah, of course, that's the flu virus. The flu virus is causing that to happen. And in fact, it isn't. There's nothing in a flu virus to do that. But our immune system recognizes the flu virus as a troublemaker. 
and mobilizes the troops. And the troops, if you will, require huge amounts of fuel. So we ration fuel to energy-hungry muscles, and we ration fuel to that energy-hungry brain. How do we ration fuel the muscles? We make muscles hurt so that it doesn't feel good to move. How do we ration fuel to the brain? We make the brain not work. And so your immune system takes all this fuel for the fight. And it's fascinating to see that, you know, what we thought was the flu virus causing the problem, in fact, is our own immune system saying, you lay back, sit down for the count, I need all this energy. And in fact, that's, uh, I think, and other data shows that that's what happened to these sedentary workers. Their energy uh, expense was just the same as if they were walking 10 miles a day, but they were burning the fuel of inflammation, the fire of inflammation, as I call it. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Yeah, one thing that, um, you know, sort of bringing these pieces together in my own life, my wife went through a really brutal um, gut problem many years ago, which frequent listeners of this podcast will have heard many, many times. Uh, and I remember she used to say, it, it just feels like my gut is inflamed. It feels like my gut is inflamed. And I had heard people talk about that the immune system is right there. And I was like, why would the immune system be in the gut? That seemed so bizarre. And then when you think, okay, well, if that junction breaks, something gets in, now the body has to go crazy. You really are inflaming that whole area. Now, the question becomes, is that what's causing the fatigue or like the just the energy reallocation? Or is this something that has to do with leaky brain and foreign substances are getting into the brain that cause like that brain fog? Like how does this all um, begin to manifest as symptoms. Yeah, that's you're exactly right. Number one, uh, it's enough in and of itself to steal enough energy to have to be tired. But I think more importantly, we're now realizing, for the most part, if you have leaky gut, you will have leaky brain in in one of two potential ways, and I, I outline them in the book. One, which is probably the most frightening is that we have a blood-brain barrier, which is a single set of cells that keeps really anything in your bloodstream away from your brain, which is kind of a sacred space. It's, it's so sacred that let's suppose you get a brain tumor uh, or you get an infection in your brain. 
we can't give you chemotherapy through your veins and it will, won't get in your brain. We can't give you antibiotics through your veins and it won't get into your brain. It's that protected. Yet, what we're now able to do with uh, blood tests is actually find disruption of the blood-brain barrier. And number two, we actually see inflammation in the brain itself, particularly with these um, secret service protecting agents of the brain, the microglia. They are actually the immune system of the brain. And they're they're handlers for the neurons, which are the real important cells of the brain. And the microglia are, you know, the bodyguards, the handlers. And if the microglia sense that there's problems in the gut, that already there's, for lack of a better word, an army that's penetrated our borders, and that the army will soon be up to the brain, the microglia actually cause neuroinflammation and literally begin to preemptively preemptively here's uh, as i talk about in the book neurons send out these dendrites to talk to other neurons very much like um, an airport has a central terminal and then satellites where you go out to catch the planes think of the neuron as the central terminal and the satellites are where you're going to catch a plane or talk to another neuron if the microglia think that an attack is imminent, they go, oh my gosh, we got to call the guys back from the satellites. So since the dendrites are actually how we talk to another nerve, how we think, how we create memory, imagine if microglia are actively popping these guys you know, away, no wonder we have brain fog. And, you know, it was something... So you're 80 years old and you don't think as clear as you did when you were 30. And we go, eh, you're 80 years old. That's okay. But now we have 30-year-old women, particularly, who have brain fog. And so many times their physician go, oh, you're a young mother. You have two kids. Um, you know, you're not getting enough sleep. Of course you have brain fog. But when we see these people, because they're not getting any better, and we actually do these tests, they light up, you know, their blood-brain barrier with all these inflammatory markers, and we see this neuroinflammation that we can now measure. This morning, I saw a 48-year-old woman who um, has Parkinson's disease, 48 years old. Um, yeah, healthy as a horse, you know, kind of out of the blue after, started after a, a funny viral illness a couple years ago. But long story short, we've been working with her for about six months, and I saw her back for a visit. And when we first checked her, she had not only leaky gut, she had markers for an autoimmune disease, lupus, uh, anti-nuclear antibody, and she had leaky brain, and she actually had an attack on the movement center of her brain, uh, anti-cerebellum antibodies. And we're going, well, no wonder, you know, you got this. You know, let's get after this. And we've now been six months. Each time we check her, her leaky gut is better and better. It's about uh, halfway to where we want her. Her autoimmune markers are gone. Her leaky brain is about half of what it was when we started. 
And her anti-cerebellar marker is pretty much gone, still mildly positive. And so you can kind of track what's happened to her by looking at how leaky her gut is. And we've gone through what she's sensitive to and some really healthy foods she's sensitive to, like you were sensitive to a really healthy food. And once you get a leaky gut, even what would normally be a healthy food, if it can get past this leak, your immune system says, hey, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to be in here in this form. It's supposed to be digested. Mm. And what are you doing there? And it literally makes an antibody. Just like if you got a shot for COVID, you made an antibody to the spike protein in, in COVID. So we make an antibody to pecans. And it's like, what? what the heck? So every time you eat pecans, your immune system goes, wow, you know, we gotta, we've got to summon the troops. This is awful. We've got to take all the energy to help poor Tom. I used to struggle profoundly with inflammation. And when I discovered keto, it changed everything for me. It changed my relationship to hunger, to inflammation, to all of it. And in the book, you make it very clear that we don't understand some fundamental things about ketosis and ketones. And so let's start with what don't we understand? Well, I guess the best place to start is what we thought we understood about mm -hmm. ketones. And ketones and ketosis have been known about since the late 1800s. And I hope that a lot of people in the keto community know that the ketogenic diet, the, the actual word ketogenic diet, was founded in 1930 at the Mayo Clinic mm. as a treatment method for children with seizure disorders, epilepsy. How did they figure that out? Because and, that does not seem like a super obvious, at least for me as a layperson, not a super obvious conclusion to draw that that's sugar-based. Well, what they found was that children who had severe epilepsy spent so long post-seizure, and it's got a medical term called post-ictal state, where they're okay, they're not seizing, but they're not really waking up. Mm -hmm. um, and they spent so many, t so many hours in this post-seizure state, repeated seizures, and then just kind of in a coma, that they didn't eat very much. And they were literally starving. And they made the observation that kids who were starving because they had so many seizures paradoxically had less seizures the more they were starving. Hmm. And so researchers first at Boston and then at the Mayo Clinic said, wait a minute, we know that ketones happen when you're starving. That's when it happens. So it must be that ketones are doing something to these kids' brains. And are there other ways other than starvation to produce ketones? And one of the ways they found was, well, look, if you deny carbohydrates and really cut back on proteins and give kids mostly fat to eat, then they will make ketones even though they're not starving to death. These kids did very well on a ketogenic diet. Uh, 50% of them had complete seizure control. Uh, recently, I've got a young man who's a high school student who, despite 
two meds, uh, was still having seizures so bad he was in special ed and falling way behind. And his mother brought him to me in my clinic in Santa Barbara. And we put him on my ketogenic diet, which is kinder and friendlier. And the kid woke up. He's off of his medications. He's now playing. Was he doing any kind of keto before that? No. Okay. Not at all. So went from meds to meds and keto or keto only? Keto only. We took him off his meds. Wow. He woke up. Uh, wasn't, you know, drugged. And now he's taking advanced classes and he's actually playing soccer uh, for his soccer team in high school. Mm. And he could not do any of this. I mean, can you imagine a kid with a severe enough seizure disorder to be on two meds now actively playing high school soccer? Um, just by changing. When did this come back into vogue? So I had somebody on the show when this was still inside quest, his son had, um, seizures, epilepsy, and he said they didn't even tell him about ketogenics because they said compliance was so low that they didn't even mention it to parents anymore. And he had to like go do his own research and he found some obscure article in like a journal from the 1950s. He was like, hold on a second, did the same thing, put his son on, boom, total, total remission, has not had a seizure in like 20 plus years. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. So the, the ketogenic diet, the high fat ketogenic diet for seizures once phenobarbital and dilantin came and the new seizure drugs came, uh, it died uh, because kids couldn't do an 80% fat diet. They actually had growth retardation and they just wouldn't follow it. Right. So what happened actually in the 80s was people discovered medium chain triglycerides, MCT oil. And this oil was the miracle oil that some of these TV shows were done. And what they found was that MCT oil could convert into ketones in the liver, and we'll get into why why that happens. And they found that if you put kids on a MCT oil-based diet, you could give them far less MCT oil, far less fats, and you can give them tons of mm. carbohydrates, which I'm a parent and grandparent now, and you cannot deny children carbohydrates as much as you, as much as we think we should. So these kids could have more carbohydrates, more protein. They could grow and develop normally, but they'd still stop their seizures. And How much do you have to reduce the carbohydrate intake if you're using MCT oil? You can't just you can't just add MCT oil, right? Well, you still have to bet. modify. Really? So no matter how much carbohydrate I'm intaking. What's amazing is, and this is human studies, you can take a tablespoon of MCT oil, which is not much, mm-hmm. and you can actually, within a half an hour, generate a generous amount of ketone body production Talking from the five, At least 0. 0.5, 0. 0.81 Whoa. from one tablespoon of, ket- of MCT oil. I've never tried it, so I can't deny it. But man, knowing how hard it is to produce ketones without it, that's scandalous. Yeah. And and that was the beauty of this. And so when I, you know, I actually started writing this after I wrote The Energy Paradox, which we've talked about. And I was trying to explain, uh, you know, where ketones fit into all this in terms of energy production. And as you know, I like to back up what I say with research, either my own or somebody else's. And as I was trying to explain how beneficial ketones were for 
energy production, for protecting mitochondria, for turning mitochondria into fat-burning efficient machines. When I started looking at you know the research to back up what I was saying, I went, holy cow, uh, I'm wrong about this, and so is everybody else. Mm-hmm. Ketones aren't some fantastic- How do you deal with that? Most people cannot, especially if they've talked about it publicly, they can't change their position. Hopefully that make, makes me one of the more believable nutritionists around because I'm always willing to say I was wrong. So what was the first thing that made you go, wait a second, I don't think we were on the right path? Well, one of the most you know, amazing things, and I, I've had a ketogenic diet in all my books. So for the last 20 years, I've had a ketogenic program for my mm-hmm. patients. And looking back, when you actually look at the list of things I allow on my ketogenic diet, there's tons of carbohydrates, and yet it works extremely well. And I've been using MCT oil for my program from kind of day one. So I, and I've written that ketones make you an efficient fat burner. And I firmly believe that. So I was going to prove how ketones actually make your mitochondria incredibly efficient at making energy. Right. And probably the best way to explain this is we know that ketones were discovered during starvation. Mm -hmm. And nobody quite figured out why they were produced uh, until the 1930s. But then how ketones came about to be known what they did really started in the late 70s, 80s, up to the year 2004 at both Harvard with George Cale and Dr. Owens and Dr. Veach at the NIH. And they wanted to know, okay, what were ketones doing? We don't do things by accident. And so they started to look at, okay, human beings clearly have starved for multiple times. we didn't have as a species. As a species, we didn't have Seven Elevens next to us. We we didn't have fast food. We we didn't have refrigeration. We didn't have storage systems, and we had to find or kill food. And there were famines, and there were times not much food. So we were designed when we found food to store a lot of it as fat. And I've written about this in previous books. Great apes, interestingly enough only gain weight during fruit season. And fruit season doesn't happen year-round in a jungle. Mm -hmm. It really only happens in the summer and early fall. We gained weight because the winter and spring was actually times of less food. So it became beneficial to take fruit and convert it into fat so we could make it through the winter. And that defect, it's actually a genetic mutation that allowed great apes to do that, we inherited as well. So we're really good at storing fat. Mm. In fact, yes, we are. Yes, we are. In fact, we're I'm better than most. We're called the fat ape for a reason. Uh, we're, we we best all apes at, at storing fat. So when we don't have any food, normally, and I talk a lot about in this book, and you and I have talked about this, most of us should have metabolic flexibility in our mitochondria. And mitochondria are the little energy-producing organelles that take we, the food we eat and produce ATP, our energy currency. And mitochondria, for anybody that doesn't know, are like aliens 
they inside are. of our cell. They have their own DNA, which is crazy, and I still don't understand how that's possible. But nonetheless, it is true. And at some point, two cells combined, and they were able to handle oxygen by the mitochondria wrapping inside of the cell, which is bananas. And there's actually a gaggle of them inside of every cell. Yes, uh, there's bunches of them. Unlike our high school biology textbook that might have said shown one or two mitochondria per mm. cell, there can be thousands of mitochondria. And they're actually in golf. They're in golf bacteria from mm. two billion years ago. And they actually carry, you're right, their own DNA. And the cool thing about that, and an important part of the book, is that mitochondria can divide and make more mitochondria without the cell they're living in dividing. Mm. So if a mitochondria gets the right stimulation, and that's part of the book, they'll make lots more of themselves and to share the energy load. So getting back to starvation, normally, you and I, hopefully, when we run out of sugar, we can immediately start burning free fatty acids. And fat. that's the flexibility you're talking about. Burn sugar, can burn fat. Yeah. We should be a hybrid car. Uh, if we burn gasoline, we'll call that sugar. When the gasoline runs out, we've been storing energy in our battery. And when the gasoline runs out, we switch over to battery power until we go fill up at the filling station. Unfortunately, here's the weird thing. 50% of normal weight individuals have no metabolic flexibility. 50% of us. Just because of modern diets. We're modern eating all diet. the time. We are never in Correct. a quote-unquote starvation phase. Correct. If you're, if you're overweight, 88% cannot shift between burning sugar and fat. If you're overweight, uh, if you're obese, 99.5% of people cannot shift to burning fat. And what's, what does that mean? Why does that matter? Well, you normally, if you and I stop eating tonight, uh, whenever, about eight hours after we stop eating, we should actually run out of glucose as mm -hmm. a fuel, and we should shift over to burning free fatty acids and ketones as a fuel until we get our next meal. That's normal. And by 12 hours of not eating, we actually ramp up ketone production to pretty much take over our brain's need for fuel temporarily. And your brain, actually, if it runs out of sugar, starts dying. So the implication for so that... So the brain is never without sugar? Believe it or not, the brain normally would run out of sugar in about eight hours after we stop eating. Normally, it runs out of sugar. And it shifts over to using ketones as a temporary fuel. The reason it can shift over is once we stop eating, we start liberating free fatty acids, fat, from our fat cells. So you're saying it would die if we didn't have ketones? Correct. Got it. Okay. So normally, those free fatty acids come out of fat cells. Every one of our cells, except the brain, can use free fatty acids as a fuel and use them very well. And this has been, again, proven at Harvard and the NIH. Our muscles love free fatty acids. My research on the heart years ago showed that the heart prefers burning free fatty acids instead mm. of sugar. It's favorite fuel. In fact, we protect the heart during heart surgery by putting fats into the heart. 
How? Uh, through the veins and the arteries. I invented You it. inject fat? Yeah. yeah, well, we dissolve it in what? our cardioplegia. Yeah. Whoa. So um, without that metabolic flexibility, then what happens? What happens is what we're discovering right now is that your brain cannot get life-saving ketones to burn as an alternative fuel and your brain runs out of glucose as a fuel because you don't have any available and your brain for several hours a night until you eat again neurons die and there's no doubt that our epidemic of alzheimer's and parkinson's and memory loss is laid at the feet of our metabolic inflexibility. Hmm. Mm. Okay, so that is certainly terrifying, yep. but means that we can do something about it. Yep. So going back to where we left off, so we go into starvation mode, we start kicking off these ketones. That feels like the sort of story up to before this book. Correct. People understood that. So where do you begin to go, wait a second, we have a problem here? Well, okay, so we can make ketones. Uh, we make ketones from free fatty acids. They go to the liver, and the liver generates ketones. Now, the liver, interestingly enough, can't use ketones as a fuel. They're incapable. They don't have the enzyme to do it. Can it use free fatty acid? Yes. Okay. <coughs> liver loves free fatty acids. Which it gets as fat is oxidized, we get free fatty acids, and we can snatch them out of the bloodstream and use them. Right. And they're a great fuel, fabulous fuel. So what everybody thought... But they can't cross the blood-brain barrier. That's bingo, the problem, right? Because they're too big and fat, if you will. So by, as luck would have it, ketone bodies, ketones, are water-soluble, small fats, and they can get through the blood-brain barrier. So the brain can use ketones until glucose arrives mm. the next morning or for several days. Now... That piece of the puzzle wasn't known. So people like Cahill, people like George Veach said, wow, ketones are clearly what made humans survive for a long time because we could use them as a fuel without burning up our muscle to make glucose. We can convert muscle protein into sugar. It's called gluconeogenesis. And they actually showed that if you literally had to live on glucose as a fuel, your muscles would be gone after about a week of starvation. So the only way for gluconeogenesis to happen is from muscle tissue. Yeah, but you can also make gluconeogenesis from breaking glycerol molecules off of triglycerides and convert that into glucose. Okay. So there is a way to get sugar from fat. Got it. We're really good at turning sugar into fat. We're really bad at turning fat back into sugar. Mm. We just don't have the enzyme system to do it. So when this ketone was found, everybody said, wow, that explains everything. We can run on ketones and be great. Not so fast. Dr. Owens at, uh, at Harvard showed that at full ketosis, human beings can only meet 30% of their calorie needs by burning ketones. 
the rest have to come from free fatty acids and glucose. So that's kind of weird if they're such a great fuel. Mm -hmm. The brain, it turns out, even at full ketosis, only 60% of the brain's needs can be met by ketones. And the brain still needs 30 to 40% of its fuel as glucose, even at full ketosis. So when I read that research, I went, well, wait a minute. This is not some super fuel. The body doesn't even view it as a super fuel. But we don't do things for, you know, not a good reason. What the heck are ketones actually doing that's so beneficial? And that's what when I went down the rabbit hole and came out with unlocking the keto code. Because ketones are not a super fuel. They are actually a signaling molecule that tells mitochondria to protect themselves at all cost from damage and to save themselves at all costs if you are starving to death. Because quite frankly, if we're starving to death, if you don't protect your mitochondria that make energy, mm. that's you the die. end of us. That You die. You're done. So uh, I read a silly little paper. It's actually maybe one of the most important papers I've ever read by uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Brand in the year 2000. And it's a simple paper called Uncoupling to Survive. Mm. And I hope all your viewers and listeners dig it up, you know, check with Google, it's there. And what he said, well, it, it just, you know, talk about a paradox. And he said, look, in extremis, the mitochondria has to survive. So the mitochondria is instructed by ketones to literally start wasting a lot of the calories that it would normally process into ATP and throw them away. My brain broke when I read that part of the book. I know. And I took down a note. I was like, hold on. And I know you answer it, but I was like, there has to be an evolutionary advantage to this. I cannot see how in a moment of starvation we would want to kick off extra energy and quote unquote waste it. At least for me, this is all coming together at a moment where it feels like there's these breakthroughs in science which are all pointing to the depression of the mitochondria and their ability to produce energy in a good way, which is weird. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I and most ketogenic diet experts have always taught that you know, ketosis, you teach your mitochondria to be energy efficient, mm. to get energy out of every last calorie because you're starving to death. So you need to turbocharge and supercharge your mitochondria to eke out every last drop of energy. And that makes incredibly sense. It's intuitive. It feels right. It feels really good. But what Brand said, no, you're wrong. They do the exact opposite. And you go, no, 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 no. There's no food. Why in the world would you waste food? Mm. So what he showed was, and I, I have a fun time in the book talking about the, the mito club. club. <laughs> yep, let's hear about it. Yeah, so, so mitochondria uh, make energy by 
energizing electrons and protons in this long tube called the electron transport chain inside a mitochondria. And I likened this long tube to the hottest hippest club in town, where people go to the club to couple, to meet someone. To hook up. To hook up. And if they hook up, they exit the club and let the imagination run. Get some energy. Get some energy. Make some some energy. And this club is it's hot, it's crowded, there's, there's hormones through the roof, there's alcohol flowing, and everybody's bumping into each other and everybody's trying to couple with everybody else. Normally, oxygen should couple with a proton and exit the back door and make ATP, uh, oxidative phosphorylation, some people have heard. But because it's crowded and there may not be a lot of available protons that people want to couple with, electrons could also couple with oxygen, and they're not supposed to. And they get, they make nasty free radicals and reactive oxygen species, and punches start being thrown, chairs are flying, and beer is flying. And there's bouncers in the club to try and calm this down. And everybody knows about antioxidants. Uh, Turns out there's only two antioxidants in mitochondria. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Melatonin, which most people don't Mm. even know is an antioxidant, the sleep hormone, and glutathione. Um, There's only two. So they're the bouncers. So getting back, the club is hot. It's energy. There's damage being done you got to keep this club under control. So everybody's trying, there's only one way out of this club through this back door, but people are getting frustrated and they want to leave because it's a bad day to couple and they're not coupling. So it turns out there's emergency exits in the club where if things get too hot. If people get too frustrated, they can push open an emergency exit and leave the club. The mitochondria have emergency exits. And there's actually five emergency exits in our electron transport chain. And they're controlled uh, by uncoupling proteins. Now, I spent six months trying to figure out a better word for uncoupling. Uh, and Because people think of uncoupling like uh, Gwyneth Baltrow getting divorced. I uncoupled my marriage. Uh, But uncoupling means that instead of joining a proton with an oxygen molecule to make ATP, the proton leaves the club, leaves the mitochondria without making energy. So what Brand showed, and others have subsequently confirmed, is that mitochondria at rest, you and I sitting here, 30% of all the calories that enter our mitochondria right now are going through these emergency exits and never making ATP. 30%, just here. Normally. Normally. and you're Not in starvation mode, just normally. normally. You and I sitting here, and you go, what a stupid idea. You and I have to eat 30% more calories every day just to make our normal amount of ATP. And you go, well, why would I do that? Well, it turns out generating heat is what those calories do. And you and I are warm-blooded animals. 
Is that the only way we generate heat? It's actually the only way we generate heat. Okay, so the emergency exit is how we stay warm. Correct. And it turns out that brown fat, which a lot of people have heard out, brown fat is our energy, our heat-producing fat. Does that mean that brown fat has more mitochondria in it? It's so many mitochondria that it looks brown under the microscope. Okay. They are crammed in there. And we thought brown fat only existed in babies to keep them warm. Uh, And there is a lot of brown fat in babies. But we now know that you and I actually have brown fat. And the more brown fat we have, the healthier we are. Hmm. We'll get to that. And what Brand eventually showed is if you look at the super old people, folks 105 and above who are thriving, they have the most uncoupled mitochondria of anybody. And you go, what? So wait a minute, uncoupling mitochondria must have huge benefits that none of us knew about. Let's get back to ketones. So ketones tell mitochondria that trouble is afoot and to protect yourselves at all costs. So the first thing you do, mitochondria, is don't damage yourself by making energy. And making energy is very damaging to mitochondria. So waste, you know, making energy. Waste more calories. Protect yourself. Cool it a bit. But secondarily, that makes no sense because you got to have enough ATP to survive. So simultaneously, the mitochondria is instructed to make more mitochondria to share the workload. Now think about this. The Iditarod is you know, being run, and let's have a one-dog one dog sled. Well, yeah, the dog can pull the sled, but he's not going to go very far before he tuckers out. But if you hook six dogs to the sled, each dog has a sixth of the workload that the one dog has. So they can go a lot farther with six of them doing less work. Now, the consequence of that is they actually are going to eat more food than the single dog to accomplish the same thing. Mm. So now you go, wait a minute, a ketogenic diet is a really good weight loss diet. It can't be because the mitochondria are more efficient, because if they're more efficient, they can get more calorie, more food, more, more energy out for of the calories. buck. Right. And in fact, you lose weight. So what happens is you actually, in a ketogenic diet, if you do it right and uncouple your mitochondria, you waste fuel. You feed six dogs instead of one. And that's where the benefit of ketosis comes from. Okay, so now I'm trying to pin down the evolutionary advantage. So I'm in starvation mode. Yep. That's when I'm producing ketones. Yep. Why on earth would starvation mode trigger my mitochondria to waste more energy and become less efficient? To protect themselves at all costs. So it's purely a protective mechanism. It's an evolutionary protective design to save the mitochondria at all costs. Dear human body, I cannot keep taking this rate of damage for you. I have to conserve. The only way to conserve is to release more of these out of the emergency exit so I don't have to process them, take on the free radicals and all the damage. 
So go out. My temperature theoretically should feel like it's going up subjectively. Uh, believe it or not, a lot of people do. And we, we'll get into the munition workers in France and Germany in mm -hmm. World War I, which actually proved his theory. Nobody knew that that proved his theory, but uh, that's what happened to them. Yeah, you actually should raise your temperature. Um, just as a, a fun fact, ever notice when you have a cup of coffee or a tea, even if it's iced coffee or iced tea, uh, many of us go, gee, you know, I'm kind of glistening, even though I'm having an iced coffee. Uh, you actually produce more heat having a cup of coffee because both the caffeine and the polyphenols in coffee and tea mm. uncouple your mitochondria and have them generate heat. Huh. So interesting. Okay, so... I, my mitochondria is protecting itself by uncoupling. They're getting rid of this stuff. They're um, making more of themselves okay. to share the workload. Each one is working less hard so that they aren't being damaged. Right. But you're recruiting more mitochondria. And the amazing thing is during ketosis or other th things that stimulate mitochondria to uncouple, you actually generate more mitochondria. And mitochondria in starvation will devote all the protein manufacturing in the cell to make more of their proteins, and they'll actually not make muscle protein. Screw the muscles. They're energy hogs. Mm. We're not going to build muscle if we're starving. We are going to build more mitochondria to work less hard. Screw everybody else. All right, here's where this gets complicated for me, though. So that all makes sense. I'm, I'm tracking with that. Uh, in the book, you talk about how it does, um, the way that it further stops the muscles from taking the energy is that it makes you insulin resistant. So, and when you look at like what happens with fructose and uric acid, there's a similar thing going on, Correct. which is, hey, raise insulin, which seems like it's bad in a modern context, but from a survive a famine context, actually brilliant because it traps the fat, makes you use it more slowly. It's hard to get out yep. to make sure that you don't burn through the energy and end up dead. Correct. But the munitions facility that you alluded to, the way that we end up dead real fast is this process on a runaway train. Is it just that I can exit people out the emergency exit way faster, way more dramatically than I can stop the fat from pouring out? Walk people through what happened in the munition factory. Okay. Um, in World War I, it was noted that munition workers in France and Germany who were assembling shells and working with gunpowder were extremely thin, even though they were eating huge amounts of food. And they could not keep weight on. And they were running a temperature 24 hours a day. And it wasn't until the late 1920s when they realized that these guys' basal metabolic rate, BMR, was elevated. And it took a couple of doctors at Stanford in 1930 to say, son of a gun, we've discovered the compound that did it in these munition workers. And it was called 2,4-dinitrophenol. And keep that word phenol in everybody's mind. We'll come back. Oh, yes, it will. 
And it's called DNP. So they actually said, oh my gosh, DNP raises the metabolic rate and it is the world's best weight loss drug that nobody's ever heard of. So in the 1930s, in America alone, over 100,000 prescriptions for DNP were written by physicians. And it was a miracle weight loss drug. You took a little bit of DNP every day, you'd lose a pound a week. That's insane. But if you took a lot of DNP, you could lose five pounds per week. You talk about a miracle. And just a little bit more and you can be dead. Yeah, now here's the problem. What happened was, as more and more and more people got on the bandwagon and saw they could lose a huge amount of weight, people were running temperatures. They started noticing that thyroids were having a problem. Then a lot of people developed cataracts, and this was before cataract surgery. And as I joke, can you imagine being able to fit into your skinny dress and not see how good you look in the mirror? Uh, Because you're blind. And then people started dying, dying like flies. And so the FDA uh, in the late 1930s, 1938, is one of their first official acts banned DNP for sale. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that in 1978, it was discovered that DNP worked because it was the first known oral uh, mitochondrial uncoupler. And DNP was so effective because it literally turned human beings from being Toyota Priuses, which are very fuel efficient, to being Ferraris, which are incredibly fuel inefficient. Now, as I talk about in the book, there might be reasons you and I would want a Ferrari rather than just wasting fuel. Mm-hmm. But the point is, we these people threw fuel out all these side exits of their mitochondria. What does it become when it takes the emergency exit? It actually produ- produces heat. That's why all these That's people it. were running a kicks off is just heat. Kicks Nothing off else. Heat. In fact, looking back um, at Gundry MD, we have a number of products with thermogenic compounds, compounds that we've known for years produce thermogenesis, mm. make heat. Lo and behold, every one of these compounds uncouples mitochondria. And lo and behold, that's why they're thermogenic compounds. They make heat. Fecal uh, microbial transplants, which are really interesting. So I think we have sort of a really basic understanding. Um, Your book goes into a lot of detail, so people should definitely check it out because it's so interesting the more that I understand this stuff. Um, But we have a basic understanding so far in the time that we've had together today. Now, how can fecal microbial transplant help with that? Why does that work? And why didn't it get widespread adoption? So back in the 70s, when broad-spectrum antibiotics came out, they they were truly miracle drugs. Because before that, we had to uh, actually culture a bacteria, find out what antibiotic it was sensitive to, and then give that antibiotic, Mm. you know. And that would take, oh gosh, 48, 72 hours to do. When broad-spectrum antibiotics were invented, it was, you know, it was a shotgun approach. Mm-hmm. No worry. We don't, even know, we don't have to know what you have. Uh, here, take this. We're going to wipe out right. everything, which was great in a lot of ways. But what we didn't know was that we also wiped out 
every last living bacteria, for the most part, in our gut. Mm. And we were so naive back then that we didn't realize that that microbiome was incredibly important. And so we developed a lot of people all of a sudden with what was then called pseudomembranous enterocolitis. It's now called C. difficile, uh, Clostridium difficile. Mm. And so these guys got horrible infections in the lining of their gut. And nobody had any treatment for it. These people were dying in hospitals after getting broad-spectrum antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And we're going, what the heck? So uh, my, one of my mentors, who was the chairman of the Department of Surgery at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, um, said, you know, this has got to be, we've wiped out most of the bacteria in the gut. And this is an ecosystem where there are checks and balances. So all of a sudden now we've wiped out most of the checks and balances and there's probably a rogue bacteria that's taken over. It's party time, you know. So clever. Party time. So he says, we got to get, you know, good stuff back. And he said, where are we going to get that? And he starts looking around at the medical students. True story. <laughs> and he said, you know, medical students, they're pretty healthy. So once a week, this is the mid-1970s, they would pass around this plastic bucket. It was called the honey pot. And we'd take it into the john and take a crap. You know, you actually had to hold it, you know, get, get to school and, you know, take a crap. And he'd take it to his lab. And I'll never forget, we had wearing blenders, you know, and homogenize all this medical Oof. student poop and put it in enema bags and give these people fecal enemas. This is wow. in the 70s. And he would have before and after pictures and he'd go to meetings and show you know, this horrible inflammation, this horrible infection in the colons. And then a week later, it's pristine, it's beautiful. You know, the mm. people are singing kumbaya inside the colon. And, and everybody goes, oh, he's making this stuff up. That can't happen. And so people did not believe it because we had no idea. No one had, had sequenced the human microbiome. Mm. That was really only five years ago. Well, now, since the sequencing of the human microbiome, it's, you know, you go, well, of course, you know, there were 10,000 different species mm. of bacteria in, in you and me. And right. In fact, a month ago, they found another thousand. And normally, there are beautiful checks and balances. But it's when these checks and balances mm. get disturbed by taking a round of antibiotics or as simply as eating meat where the chicken or the pork or the beef was given antibiotics. You know, when we eat that, they have residual antibiotics right. in them, and we eat the antibiotics. Oof. Talk to me about the holome, holobiome. Holobiome. Yeah. Yeah, I, so there are a number of researchers that think we should use holobiome rather than microbiome. Microbiome mm -hmm. pretty much attempts to define the bugs that are living in our gut. Right. We have an oral microbiome, and we actually have a cloud of bacteria that live in the air around us. And there is this theory, which I really do like, that our personal space is actually determined when your holobiome, your cloud, bumps up against mine. Dude, that would be so weird well, if that's true. 
Well, I mean, because you feel something like yeah, yeah, yeah. you feel that. And, and there's certain people that you're you're allowing in closer, right? And it gets so twilight zoney that I, you know, I always play that music in my head. We know that kissing, for instance, is a universal uh, human great ape and often animal characteristic. And there's some pretty cool, wacky suggestion that I really like that kissing, you are exchanging your oral microbiome and your bacteria are actually deciding if your person next to you is compatible with them. You've heard of that whole study where they have women just smell these t-shirts and rank them in order of desirability. And the women are like, I have no idea why you're making me do this. But they put them in order of most genetic diversity or difference from their own to uh, most similar to their own. Yeah. That's surreal. Yeah. And women, you know, and I I say this as as often as anyone will say, women have a gut feeling Mm. far better than men. And that is because women actually are far better capable of listening to their microbiome. And I get Mm. kind of deep into the fact that uh, our microbiome is inherited from our mother. We Mm. get it from our mother. And all of the mitochondria, the little energy-producing organelles in us, are actually engulfed bacteria that are inherited from our mother. And they have their own separate DNA and their maternal DNA. And there is now actually very good evidence that the bacteria in our microbiome communicate via text messages that now have been measured to mitochondria. They're sisters and about how things are going mm. in the the body and the outside world. It's so crazy. So and so talk, w- women trust your gut. Yeah. And, uh going back to the microbiome coming from your mother. Yeah. Um, I've become probably a little like oversteppy. Like I normally like, Hey, whatever you want to do until I hear somebody, um, saying that, Oh, I, I'm, I have a planned C-section. So look, if you need one, obviously get one. Jesus. Absolutely. But if you don't need one, I'm like, make sure that you smear the baby in the vaginal fluid at a minimum. And people are always like, Whoa, but just trying to pass that microbiome on. And you said there was a recent study that came out about autism and fecal microbial transplants and how the link between a a successful, maybe the wrong word, microbiome and an unsuccessful one can manifest as autism. Talk to me about that study. Yeah, there's, um, we've known for actually a long time since the microbiome was identified and sequenced that we know that number one, kids with autism have a lot more irritable bowel, and mm-hmm. they have a lot more GI issues, and they actually have a very different microbiome than, quote, normal. And there has been a suggestion for years that maybe it is that microbiome that is contributing, not going to say cause, mm-hmm. autism. There's even more exciting work in gynecology and obstetrics that the, there is a microbiome in the vagina that we know about, but there is a microbiome of the placenta itself. And there's some actually exciting work that 
perhaps the microbiome of the placenta is the most important in terms of educating the neonate, the fetus's immune system. Do you only encounter that as um, you're actually born and you go through no, it? during like, So pregnancy. the whole time you're washing it. During. Then why would a C-section be so problematic? Well, so one of the theories of autism is that this is an in utero problem that happened to the kid before he was born or she was born. The reason I say he is that boys have it far more than girls. And that now there is interesting evidence that we should be working on the maternal microbiome during before pregnancy. And certainly during pregnancy, we need to start early in making sure the microbiome is right. So getting back to autism, there was a recent study just published and don't quote me on the exact details, but it comes out of Australia. And because of this connection with autistic kids having funny bowels and a funny microbiome, they, with an institutional review board permission, did oral fecal transplants in a large number of autistic mm. kids. And they did this for about six weeks. Almost immediately, 50% of the autism symptoms subsided, 50%. Man. And the paper has now followed these kids for two years, and the 50% reduction in symptoms has continued. Wow. And if that doesn't make the case that you know the gut and the microbiome has such an incredible effect on the brain I don't know what does. Mm, no kidding. <laughs> now that we know that, and your, your book goes into great detail, including recipes and all kinds of stuff, what's a quick overlay of lifestyle and dietary choices that people should make if they want to um, die young at a ripe old age, as the uh, subheadline of the book goes? So we know that there are ways to give these good guys, like Eckermansia, uh, what they like to eat. And they love resistant starches. They love tubers like yams, like jicama, like taro root, like yucca or yucca. They love uh, mushrooms. And there's a beautiful recent study out of uh, South Asia of people basically having a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's if you eat two cups of mushrooms a week. What? So there is this incredible compound in mushrooms uh, I'll probably fracture it, ergotheonine, thionine, that actually crosses the blood-brain barrier better than turmeric, curcumin, what? and actually protects uh, against neuroinflammation. Hmm. And it turns out that mushrooms absolutely positively feed these friendly bacteria. And mushrooms contain this compound called spermidine, it's a polyamine that study after study shows promotes longevity. Okay, so those are some of the things. Also, inulin-containing compounds. Mm -hmm. So inulin is present in chicory. Uh, you can buy inulin made out of yacon root in any store as a sweetener. So inulin feeds acromancia. And so it's present in chicory, it's present in radicchio, Belgian endive, uh, Jerusalem artichokes, sunchokes, they're just 
pure inulin. Mm. So the more of this stuff you eat, uh, the more of this bug you're going to grow. So that's number one. So eat for them. Number two, exercise. Beautiful study in women. Women have more Alzheimer's disease than men. And so you look at an exercise program in women. Women who exercise regularly, routinely, kind of from midlife on, have a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's. Whoa. And compared to women who don't exercise routine. Mm. And in the women who are going to get Alzheimer's, it's 11 years later than if they didn't exercise. So, I mean, think about that. If we had a drug that had a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's, yeah. you know, how much would we pay for that? You, know, you and I would be <laughs> popping that nuts. every day. Uh, we wouldn't have $40 billion wasted on amyloid drugs. Mm. But it's available by housework, by gardening, by getting a dog and walking it twice a okay, day. Okay, that's interesting. So when you say housework, why do you say that? I think people would be confused by that. It turns out that, uh, give me an example, my, my mother actually scrubbed her floors until the day she died at 90, uh, even though there were Swifters and things mm. like that. And she did it as an exercise program. Exercise changes the gut microbiome yeah, that's to a friendly microbiome. Meditation, yoga changes the gut microbiome. It seems impossible. It's so interesting that they're in a two-way communication. Yeah. Yeah, it literally, and there's there's even some really cool stuff that yoga postures uh, actually move this microbiome mm. around in your gut, and they actually get signals, probably electrical signals. So all these chakras that you know in Eastern medicine, it's probably all this part of this. In, really amazing communication system that Western medicine is just going, oh, come on, that's all voodoo. Yeah. Because Seems we couldn't impossible. measure it before. Mm. Yeah. So exercise is really important. Lastly, uh, <coughs> I really want people to have a brainwash day at mm. least once a week. So uh, in the last couple of years, we've learned that there is a lymph system in the brain called the glymphatic system. And it, no one actually believed it existed, but now it, it exists. And the brain actually, in deep sleep, which happens very early in the sleep cycle, goes through a literal wash cycle. Mm -hmm. It shrinks by about 20%. And all of these toxins, like amyloid, like tau, like bad pieces of protein are actually squeezed out of the brain, like wringing out mm -hmm. a sponge. And it happens in deep sleep and it happens early in the sleep cycle. So we have to have a lot of blood flow to our brain to do that. The brain uses huge amounts of blood flow, but we have to have even more. So the evidence is that you need about a three or four hour window before the last meal of your day, mm -hmm. before you go to sleep, why? Because digestion is actually really energy expensive. So we put huge amounts of blood flow down into our gut. If you eat near the time you go to bed, that blood flow is down in your intestines and it doesn't go up to your brain. So there's actually a recent study of men who had uh, unstable angina or heart attack. And they followed those men who ate late at night 
had a much higher incidence of a new wow. angina or new heart, heart attack. Hmm. And so they're all really actually interconnected. So one day a week, I ask people, finish your last meal at 6 o'clock. Hmm. If you go to bed at, say, 10. Right. If it's 11, finish it at 7. Do not snack before bedtime. And allow yourself to have a brainwash. Better yet, skip a meal. And that gets in probably to the fourth point. You've got to have periods of extended lengths of time between eating. We were supposed to go prolonged periods of time before our next meal. Mm. And break fast, we've talked about this before, it ruins your, you know, your morning stuff, was you break your fast. And, it, and there's no definition of when you know, it's supposed to be breakfast. Right. That was from the dear old Kellogg's Corn Flake Company telling people they had to eat breakfast. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that the whole um, lifestyle that you just painted, like, makes all the sense in the world. Like when you start looking at the research, even just like, so one, I can certainly speak to the anti-inflammatory properties of a lot of things that you're talking about, um, which that has been revolutionary in my life. Intermittent fasting has had a whole host of benefits for me anecdotally. And then certainly I think there's a lot of data backing things up. You've talked a lot about how eating is just an excuse to get olive oil in your mouth. Man, I hope you're right about that one because I have really um, taken that to heart. There does seem to be some pretty tremendous benefits to that. Um, it's, it's really pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Um, you know, and I, I show a lot of studies. I think the, probably the best one is the Predimed study out of Spain where just simplistically they took 65-year-old people, divided them into three groups. One, they all ate a Mediterranean diet, Spain. Yeah. Uh, one group had to use a liter of olive oil per week. The second group had to eat the equivalent calories in walnuts primarily. The third group had a low-fat Mediterranean diet, followed for five years. The in initial study was look at memory. The olive oil group and the walnut group had improved memory after wow. five years. The low-fat group lost memory. The people in all groups with known coronary artery disease or stroke, the olive oil group had a 30% reduction in new events. The uh, low-fat group had an increase, uh, continued mm -hmm. events. So this stuff is miraculous. Um, it actually grows neurons, the polyphenols in olive oil. And here's another crazy fun fact. Now, there's a, a chemical that I talk about called TMAO, discovered by the Cleveland Clinic. TMAO is made by our gut bacteria, mm. primarily from animal proteins, particularly choline and carnitine. Choline's in egg yolks. We need choline for our brain, but our gut bacteria love it. They make it out of these, and TMAO damages blood vessels. To the Cleveland Clinic's credit, they said, well, wait a minute. Uh, the Mediterranean diet seems to be very good for preventing heart disease, and yet these guys eat fish, they, you know, they eat cheeses, they eat salamis. What gives? So they actually discovered that there are polyphenols in certain olive oils, balsamic vinegar, and red wine that paralyze these enzyme systems in the bacteria. It doesn't kill the bacteria, it paralyzes the enzymes. So you could eat all the choline and carnitine you want, but you will not make TMAO. Mm. So 
olive oil, balsamic vinegar, make a spritzer of balsamic vinegar and sparkling water. Yeah, you got me on that. Yeah, and have a glass of red wine. And so you will prov- you'll, you can still have your, you know, your meat and eat it too. Mm. I like not that. Much. I like that. All right, tell people where they can find your book. Uh, anywhere, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Audible. I actually did the Audible of this book. Uh, so if you want to hear my voice longer and longer, I, I read the book. My man. Uh, you can find it at Gundry MD. You can find me at drgundry.com. Come to my YouTube channel. I've got a podcast, the Dr. Mm, Gundry Podcast. Yes. I'm on Instagram, Facebook. Mm. Um, what's the one change that people could make that would have the biggest impact on their longevity? The one change, and I, you know, I get on my soapbox, is you got to get your vitamin D level up. Take at least 5,000 IUs of vitamin D. Now, a day? A day. The University of California, wow. San Diego, has shown that the average American to have an adequate vitamin D level should have 9,600 international units a day. The average American. Whoa. If you look at cancer patients, they almost always have a low vitamin D. Every one of my patients with autoimmune disease walks through the door with a low vitamin D. If you look at, if you like the telomere theory of aging, mm. where the little caps on the end of chromosomes, and it's a good theory of aging, the higher your vitamin D level, the longer your telomeres are. Interesting. And vitamin D, getting back to those little crypts down in the down mm. in our shag carpet. Those stem cells actually have to be stimulated to move by vitamin D. And if you don't have vitamin D, they will sit there and you will have a leaky gut. There it so is. So that's number one. Number it. two, take time to release vitamin C twice a day or chew a 500 milligram vitamin C four times a day. All right. We're one of the few animals that don't produce vitamin C. Mm. And you got to have it for so many functions, particularly if women, they have to know that collagen will not repair all their wrinkles without vitamin C. Mm. 